Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. This is Simon Sweetman and this is episode 67. Uh, thank you to Tea Leaf Tea, uh, Yesty Boys and Le Petit Chocolat, our sponsors, for giving us nice, nice product to share about. Um, this is me having a conversation with a poet and uh, a writer and academic, a guy called Jeffrey Paparar Holman. He's a, he's a South Islander. Um, he was up travelling through Wellington to do an event for one of his latest books. And I jumped at the chance to have a chat to him. I, had, I hadn't met him, but I had read some of his, his work. He's got two brand new books of poetry. One is called Dylan Junkie. It's um, poems inspired by and in tribute to Bob Dylan. But they're autobiographical poems. They're about Jeffrey. They're about his life. They're, um, he just takes the um, very much the essence and spirit of Dylan and what he's got from Bob Dylan. And um, the poems are all referencing Dylan. They're either named after lyrics or song titles. It's very clever. It's really great. Um, and so we do talk quite a bit about Bob Dylan because he is a Dylan junkie. He is a massive fan. And Bob Dylan played an important part in his life. Uh, I like to think Bob Dylan's played an important part in my life. And um, it's it's good timing giving you this episode uh, given the great uh, Bob Dylan Nobel Prize lecture that just went up earlier this week. So um, I'll include a link to that actually in the notes because, uh, yeah, we talk about Dylan a lot, but we talk about Jeffrey's life and his poetry. He's also got a selected poems out at the moment called Blood Ties. That's brand new. And there's, you know, over half a dozen volumes of poetry. He's also written uh, non-fiction. He's a scholar. Um, he's he's written, uh, wi- uh, you know, widely across uh, fiction, uh, essays, lots of stuff. And um, he's had a, an interesting life where he has worked um, manual labour and psychiatric care. He has done all sorts of things in all sorts of places. He's travelled widely. Um, so we get into some pretty big question stuff, like, you know, how has this all formed a life for him? And, and how has he, you know, how did he arrive at poetry? And, uh, and then you know, university scholar and, and all of the stuff that he's doing, the academia, it's all it's all linked. So it's a big conversation and I um, I really, really enjoyed talking to him um, because we got to obsess over Bob Dylan but also we found a way for that to, to venture off into our lives and to talk about how, you know, a, a big thing we get into is sort of the nature of influence, where, where things come from and what they mean to you and how you process them. So, yeah, it's all of that and a whole lot more. And um, uh, it was just great talking to him. I think he's a fantastic writer and he was, uh, uh, you know, very much a scholar and a gent, a lovely chap to sit down and spend a couple of hours with. So this is me talking uh, deep and large and long with uh, Jeffrey Paparajoman. We could start with a bit of Dylan stuff in the new book and then maybe we'll go all the way back through your life and see if we can get back to Dylan because... I'm interested to know exactly when and where he came into your into your life. So you've just released this book of poems called Dylan Junkie. Yeah, well, it's come out in the Hoopla series. Yeah. You know, Mary McCallum and Paul run from down in Gusney Street. And um, it's been very interesting because, you know, I've always released one book. Yeah. Uh, and that's you. But this, these have a, a sort of beginning poet, someone who's put some already That's right, books yeah. out, and already put some books out, and and then they have an older poet, or an established, uh, an established act, a some, headliner. Well, no, they, call you, they call you a kamatua, yes, or, which is kind of nice because yeah, my yeah, connections yeah. to Tuti on Maui in my studies. But 
Um, and it's been really nice, you know, we've done two um, launches in Takapuna, which yeah. is at the library up there. Yeah. And that was great because it was North Shore people who, you know, um, know the library, had come mm. in, 100 of them, and they sold 100 books over mm. three parts. Mm. Well, some people bought two or three books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty massive. Um, a really nice little um, series. It's the third time they've done this, or fourth, um, I think. Let me see. It probably says inside your copy there, but yeah. I, I've read quite a few of them. This is the fourth. That's yeah, what started I started in 2014. Yeah, I think I missed the very first um, run, but mm. the last three years they've been kind to send them to me, and I've, really, I've read most of them. Mm. Um, Obviously, the other two that were released in, in, in series with yours, I've, I've got and I've got to get to. But, yeah, I really like them. I like the idea. They're nice books. They look nice. Well, they, they feel they, nice. They've got the series idea, and they yes. all have this, the similar look, different yes. colours. And um, Bill Carden Horton, who does the cover, he's their cover artist mm, at the moment. Mm. So there's a continuity of yes. artwork right Yeah, through. absolutely. Um, and he, he does the work for Icebreaker. Yeah, right. So that's where you might recognise his work ah, from. OK. Um, and he's a fantastic artist. Yeah. He, I saw something he put on um, Facebook yesterday, and um, you know he he he's a Buddhist, yeah, and he likes to be in the moment and draw in the moment, and this was apparently drawn in the back of a coffee cup. Ah, oh, right, because it was it's, available. You it's, know. it's fantastic. It's such a great yeah, such um, a great Dylan and, image. And so it captures the spirit of the book, really. Cause totally, it's, it's people responding to this guy. You know? So, and, tell me, did you already have the idea for this Dylan book in place, or? Did you know was it how was it commissioned or come about? Like, were you going to release it anyway, and then it became part of the series? Is I guess what I'm getting at. Um, well, I was looking for a publisher. Yeah. Um, and the the history of it basically was back in um, 2004 or five. I wrote a series of poems about different things, um, which put into a manuscript which didn't work. Yeah. Um, and so I filleted some of those poems out for a book which became Ooh, Flyboy, yeah. aeroplane poem. Yeah. Roger Steele published that in 2010. Um, and the Dylan poems were in there um, and basically they were a series of riffs on, on lines from Hard Rain. Yeah. Okay. Um, and there were quite a lot more than, of those poems than now appear in this book. Um, and I sent them out to one publisher and they liked something but didn't like something else. And so I was busy with, you know, I think maybe the Nelson Best book, I can't remember, yeah. around 2010. So, um, oh no, it was The Lost Pilot, the Kamikaze Moon one. So I kind of let them write. But I returned to it and did some more work and sent them to another publisher yeah. and they put their thumbs down too. Yeah. Which some people now, you know, they get dis disheartened at, but I just think, well, the book wasn't for them yeah, yeah, or I haven't right. finished with it yet. So yeah. I sometimes take it as an opportunity to go back and I'll look at what they say, um, which often it's worthwhile. Sometimes I don't take any notice of certain things. Um, but I decided, okay, you know, I think I need to do more in my own head about this book. Yeah. So um, the lines from Hard Rain were actually um, riffs from those lines, um, you know, about the clown that died in the gutter, for instance. Well, I went back and decided I would write a series which were basically autobiographical points where I'd started listening to Dylan and yeah. pick, pick out a few albums, a few songs. Yeah. Um, so that became the History Lessons. Um, yeah. I just called this, I called the sequence History Lessons um, and then wrote from there. And I set the tone by writing that thing about the old Jew being mm. persecuted by the Nazis in Austria and Vienna. Because that's kind of an underlying thing with Dylan, right? Mm -hmm. the, he came from that Jewish diaspora. Mm. Both his grandparents were from Europe, um, Lithuania um, and I think Odessa. Um, 
So they were part of that wave of millions of people that came over in the 1880s, 90s to America. Yeah. And if they'd stayed where they were, the Nazis would have killed them. So there's a kind of thing underneath Dylan, you know, yes. he's, a, he's a sort of survivor. Yeah, totally. They all were by getting there. Those children of that generation they came from people who survived by getting out. So and they came from pogroms. So um, that's, that's, that, that's that epigraph, really, to that yeah. series. And then I start talking about me, yeah. but sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. Yes. And that's usually related to a song, like the one where um, I, I, I talk about... Um, being a shearer in Western Australia, and my back goes out of joint, right? And they mm. go, I go and see this this um, folk folk curist with with tumblers. Yeah. Um, um, and and the song that I associate with that is went to see the gypsy. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. But I didn't hear that song till later. Right, so right. Sometimes they approach they approach the time. Sometimes I fit them in there. Other yeah. times there's one song in there called No Time to Think, which is when a good friend of mine, Abel Salisbury, drowned on the west coast. Another friend, Bill Matheson, the Jade Carver, I was really friendly with, a good mate of mine, he came and told me. And that poem, No Time to Think, is basically at the time when Street Legal came out. Yeah. You know, and that song, which late is... Late 70s, yeah. Yeah, late 70s, 78. Mm. So, um, that, that's how it worked. And I went mm. through and I deliberately wrote them, picked a certain song right through to, to Tempest. Yes. Um, at, at the very end. Um, and and I'd, already, I'd already written, by that time, I'd already written the Heading for Hibbing series, which I wrote while I was in Iowa City. Yeah. Um, and I went up to Hibbing to visit the hometown. So I put these things together and sort of thought, okay, which goes where? Yeah. Um, and so I had a sequence. And I was talking to Mary McCullen, Noel Hoopla, about another project she was working on. Mm. We did a bit of work together on mm. that project. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, I've got a um, manuscript you might be interested in, <laughs> yeah. as you do, you know, as you do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and she said, okay, I'll have a look. That's that's where that's, it came from. That's where it came from. Yeah. So, when did you, um, when did you discover Dylan? When did he first mean something to you? Well, I just did a. Um, I don't want to cross interview mm. here, but um, still do a thunder. But I just did a an email interview with. Paula Green on Poetry Shelf, uh -huh. and I've been thinking about these things, trying to answer her questions, yeah. you know. Um, you, uh, you know, I'm 70 this year, so a lot of precise memory about sure. 1963, 4 has faded. Sure. But I can I can definitely remember hearing Peter, Paul and Mary singing The Times They Are Changing. Mm. Um, and I definitely remember hearing the birds doing Mr. Tambourine Man, because mm. that's a great song, mm. and they did an interesting version of it. Yes. But I heard, kept hearing about the guy that had written them, um, and then someone, and I think it was possibly Pete Sinclair on the Sunset Show, who I dedicated the book to, yeah. played Dylan's version, yeah. which, you know, it was a bit of a cold bath when you heard this smooth, yes. you know, <laughs> that, 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 that twanging, yeah. The string that the, the Rickenbacker. The Rickenbacker, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I thought, okay. And next thing, he put Subterranean Homesick Blues on the airwaves yeah, yeah. from 2ZB. And we could hear 2ZB down on the west coast and Blackpool up in the hills, you know. Yeah. You could pick up Australia um, because of the weird reception, but you couldn't pick up Christchurch somewhere. Right. <laughs> um, and it just came, poof, you know, 
out of nowhere. Yeah. Like it, you know, it was all these beat and influence lyrics and this Chuck Berry sort of riff. Mm. Two minutes, 16 long, as long as a pop song. But you know, you get one verse in there, like, you uh, get born, keep born, short pants, romance, don't dance, get blessed. It's a rap. Mm. But it's the book of Ecclesiastes in about six lines, you know? Mm -hmm. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, all that stuff. You know, what's the point of it all? And so it's it's a sort of a challenge to Middle America, and it's a sneer, and it's all sorts of things. And it was kind of like, um, you know, drink this. Yeah. Um, so I I then went out. I was so taken by that song, I went into town to the record shop, which was sort of you know, middle of the road. Sold Jim Reeves and Yellow Cardigans yeah. <laughs> and all the the stuff that West Coast has liked. Yes. Um, and Kenneth McKellar and all this sort of stuff. Pat Boone and said, have you got any by Bob Dylan? And they looked in the rack and they said, well, is this one? And they pulled out another side of Bob Dylan, Manna from Heaven. I took it home. I had a friend who's now, now plays in a band in Dunedin, Stephen Hudson. He was staying with me that weekend and we played this thing. And we didn't know what to make of it. My father said, what's that? What's that noise? Because <laughs> it was a radiogram. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. you couldn't carry your music if you no. could or put your Yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone, had, everyone that was in a radius yeah. had to experience it. Had to listen. So <laughs> yeah. they bore with me, my, my parents, I have to say. Mm. And, you know, songs like My Back Pages, you know. Um, but if you think I'll let the Crimson go Flames, uh, through my ears, blowing traps, pounce this fire on flaming roads using my ears. What the hell's that about? You know, but the voice got you yeah. after a couple of listens. Um, but then you would do funny songs like, you know, Motorcycle Nightmare. Yeah, yeah. And you threw a Reader's Digest at my head as I did run. You know, the sun's coming up because you need to get his gun. You know, and it's this conservative farmer right out there in, in, in the wheat belt um, who, who, who hates liberals. Sort of a, you know, that, that kind of thing where, um, what does Hitchcock do that film, Psycho, where yeah. you, get, you get the motel, and, yeah, yeah. you know, um, he meets the daughter, you know, and the daughter wants to wants to, wants to bed him, and um, he thinks uh, the farmer's already, you know, bound him to a promise that you can't touch the daughter in the morning with the cow. It's a kind of, it's, it, there, were, there were sort of um, joke songs and mm. funny songs around, mm. you know, not, it's not quite Purple People Eater, but there was, uh, Ahab the Arab, that, yeah, sort of, yeah. that sort of song that was around in those days, musical stuff almost, you know, yokel stuff, country mm, stuff. Mm. And he plugs into that yarn-telling tradition, that yarn-spinning tradition in those early songs. And would, by the time he gets to two years later, and you know, you know that, those New York songs, it's gone. Yeah. It, never, it never comes back. There are no more funny songs. So that was a part of his life which was he'd already left that behind, and he was on doing doing the electric stuff, mm. bang. Um, so I picked him up you know, when he'd moved on somewhere else. Um, did you recognise, I mean, hearing you recite those lyrics, um, did you recognise the poetry in the songs straight away, or was it just a jolt of this is music that's not Pat Boone and whatever else but did you could you identify as a teenager listening to it could you identify it as a type of poetry or something profound yeah well, you know, like well I think I, I, I would have if you'd asked me at the time this is poetry I'd say no he's singing yeah um, but you know the relationship between lyric and song and everything's all been pretty much mm. exhausted since you got the Nobel Prize and I don't yeah. really care on that level but um, I think he's well and truly deserves to be there, but mm, mm. Um, you know, I, th I think some of the content of the songs 
Part of them were, 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 were intriguing, part of them were challenging, part of them were funny. There's a whole character jumped out of that album, right? Yes. Which you couldn't say about, about Marty Robbins' Gunfighter Ballads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, much as I liked them and uh, seen them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Fantastic record. And Gene Pitney, 24 Hours from Tulsa. Yeah. What's not to like? But there was something going on there which I hadn't heard before. Mm. So he opened up a gap. Mm. Um, and when you get a song like, you know, Chimes of Freedom, um, you know, and the poet and the painter far behind his rightful time, yeah. you know, and and that mistreated mateless mother, the mistitled prostitute, you know, there's a lot of um, um, just sheer power. I mean, Springsteen did a version of that song yes. for Amnesty International, real pounding, you know, some arena ballad, and it's fantastic, but I still like Bill Hunt better. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like this young guy figuring his way in the world. Um, so I got I got intrigued. So you, um, what I want to get towards is that, yeah. and, and what you just said then is, is is perfect. Is that you kind of found Dylan when you yourself was a young guy trying to work, work out where you are in the world. I imagine or getting towards that. Uh, I want to know when you get when you get if not through Dylan, um, when you get some sort of dis. Uh, understanding of poetry. When does poetry into your life? Okay. Um, well, what you just said, I'll just read one yeah, line. One sure. line from Please this first, first, first um, poem when yeah. the thin wild Mercury music came. It said, "Hearing him was like wind over water, like when it was time to go home from the river, and you knew it was you before that sound. You knew it was you right after that, and it was two different kinds of you. One just waiting to be, and one becoming. You know, that's I haven't quite finished that stanza, but you know, it's sort of like." It caught me at a cusp of 15 years old in a difficult domestic situation, you know, a bright student in a coal mining town, um, no idea who I was really or where I was going, but completely at home there, you know, and all of a sudden he just opens a door. So yes. there's something there that leads me to poetry that I guess linked into what happened in my fifth form year when I met my um, English teacher, Peter Hooper, who was a writer. Yeah. Um, and I guess he became a kind of surrogate to me in some ways because um, he recognised that I could write, gave me very good remarks on my essays and stuff, but he was a working poet and he he published a book not that year but the following year, so he would have been working on it you know, well yeah. before that. Um, and he brought this psychostyle sheet along today to, to class one day and said, now today I'm going to um, give you some um, ideas or whatever inspiration about writing some poems of your own um, and he produced this sheet and it had a few ideas on it what you could write about and write about what you know and write about your own world um, and and then there was a poem in the middle which he'd, he'd, he'd obviously written and worked on um, and and he'd crossed out things and changed it so straight away you saw here's a poem about the west coast and this person has written it um, has changed things. So you learned about revision without even knowing yeah. you were learning about revision. So it was a little creative writing class yeah, yeah. in Greymouth in 1963, but the people that were getting it were people like you know the grocer's daughter, the bus driver's son, you know, in my case the coal miner's son, mm. whatever, you know, ordinary people, um, ordinary kids. Mm. Uh, and so we all had, didn't have to, we still sat down and wrote poems. Yeah. Um, and he said, if you're having trouble, you know, use this formula, three things I love. You know, and mm. People did that. Um, and then a poem I wrote that year, which is, um, it's, a, it's actually the first poem now in this new selected Blood Ties. Um, it's just about night in Blackpool. 
um, he published it in the school magazine. So it's like the first publication. Mm. And then the following year, I, I was reading A.J.P. Taylor's book, um, The First World War, which is a great photo essay in many ways, as well as historical work. Um, and I was becoming more and more, and more obsessed with, with war and its effects um, because someone had brought along to high school uh, a photo essay put out by the League of Nations um, and it had the title in three or four languages in front saying, No More War, No More War. And you open it up with all these pictures of mutilated men who'd come back and survived from the trenches with limbs and parts of their faces, you know, removed, mm. blown off. And it was horrifying, you know, and it kind of, it sort of smacked you in the face that this is what, this is the reality of war. If you, you know, you go, you're liable to get killed or get disfigured. Um, and then I had Taylor's book at the same time, which just had a lot of um, very sarcastic captions to the photographs. You know, like you know, there were pictures of um, General Joffre and a couple of the French generals coming out of a cathedral, you know, with their big fat bellies saying, the Lord be praised once more. You know, yeah, yeah. he was cynical and sardonic and hard-hitting northerner. Um, and so I was getting, you know, a kind of view of the world. We just had the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, the world seemed much less trustworthy than it ever had, I suppose. Um, and along, along comes Dylan. So, you know, I start writing poetry in response to that and I wrote a poem about um, about the end of the end of the war where this guy gets basically shot and, I, and the armistice was signed this morning you know I'm sort of playing with a bit of irony mm. and, and, and pathos trying to and then I wrote a poem about my grandmother who was walking past um, as I was doing my homework and um, she looked over and because I wrote the poem, I remember this. She said, mm. she, well, if I'd gone to school when I was five and I'd had good eyes, I might have been clever. <laughs> huh? Such a wonderful sort of comment. Um, and so I wrote a poem about this. Yeah. So I remember those two poems. Um, that whether, whether Dylan had an influence. Um, he's in there somewhere. He's in there somewhere, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's probably, uh, in some ways, it's about all the best you can say for, yeah. for, for, for influence. Because... Yes. Um, you're absorbing things in, from so many different ways and angles. Um, you know, the, the first the first title I gave to this anthology, well, this selected a few years ago while I was working on the draft, mm. was My Culture is My Songbook. Yeah? And just while I was coming up here and I was talking to Dylan in the car, Dylan Horrocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't want people... We, we should say. <laughs> I remembered a comment um, that was made... I read by Adrian Rich mm. talking about John Berryman mm -hmm. in, in an article. I think it's worth it's worth just repeating. She says, the English, brackets, American language, who knows entirely what it is? Adrian Rich asked in 1969. Maybe two men in this decade, Bob Dylan, John Berryman. Mm. Right? So I was absorbing the New Zealand English language, right? But I was living with an expatriate Englishman, um, uh, two expatriate English women, although my mother had been born in New Zealand, but she'd gone back to England as a young girl. So I was living in this English subculture inside a coal miner's house in Blackpool. When you walked out the door, you're inside West Coast culture. Mm, mm. Um, these were people who, my mother had grown up in Liverpool, my father had grown up in London, they were urban people, they'd been through the war. My grandmother was a Victorian, born in 1878. You know, she talked to me constantly about her memories of England, Liverpool, you know, there were all these worlds, yeah. worlds going on. So I'm, I'm getting my playbook uh, that, that yeah. Adrian Rich is talking about from a number of different worlds. And then he comes in 
and energizes it. It's yeah. like he, he plugged me in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of people. Like Simon Armitage talks in this book, Do You, Mr. Jones? It's all about Dylan and the poets and the professors, and they all write about him. But Armitage is a practicing poet, and he yes. writes about you know, he was a, he was he was a punk kid in the seventies in, 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 in Britain. Midlands, and he was interested in this faded hippie. But he gradually came around yeah. and kept saying to me, you should listen to this, you should listen to this, you know. Um, but th- that wasn't him. He, he, he was, he'd rather listen to some punk band in a toilet in Hebron Bridge. Yeah, yeah. Because that was his moment. Well, Dylan was my moment. Um, and for a number of years after that, I, I sort of, I sort of, it's like, it's like, it's like he, went, he went to Woodstock. You know, I went out on shearing gangs. I went, I went way away from that urban voice that he developed in the 60s, that sophisticated, that sardonic, that cynical. Yeah. You know, I went back to John Hoare country. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, where, you know, you could, get, you, could, you could get smacked over there for saying that you thought in New Zealand should, should stop having the Queen's head on postage stamps. <laughs> because, and one guy stopped talking to me for three weeks on a shearing game because I said, why is her head on our postage stamps? You know, it's deep rural <laughs> yeah. conservatism. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know... Good stuff, Bill English. God bless you, you know. But you know, you you could be a certain person if you'd gone to Christchurch and gone to university. I dropped out. I went out in the country. I worked with those people. I was trying to find something. I don't know. I was trying to find out how to be a good New Zealander. God only knows. But Dylan, Dylan didn't belong out there. So you know, I was sort of ended up listening to like a Rolling Stone on the jukebox and right. Pahia Tua yeah. while my friends got restless, you know, yeah, yeah. and didn't want to listen to it. Yeah. Um, so I didn't buy another Dylan album until the early 70s. But even when I was in Australia, you know, wherever I went, you know, I would hear songs in the background. Um, and I picked up a whole lot more in those early days when I was listening to him in the 70s, like, you know, Gates of Eden, you know, um, only a pawn in their game, yeah. you know, all those sorts of songs, as well as the. And did you spot uh, like? Um, yeah. Did you spot him as an obvious like the reference point for other musicians? Like you mentioned Springsteen covering him, but obviously one of the things that happened very early on for Springsteen was he, he seems to be one of the few people that was able to take that tag, the next Dylan or the new Dylan, and actually develop something of himself out of it, rather than be you know. Labelled only as that and never achieve anything because what a millstone that's like someone else writing you a suicide note. Well, it's been like that for most people that have been called exactly. He's he's one of the very few. um, But did you recognize, you know, when you're hearing stuff, you know, like some of the Elvis Costello stuff, whatever, you know, all these literate, wordy writers that had to have come from from Dylan on some level? Was that of interest to you? Yeah, well, it wasn't really until the 70s, you know, when I, I was in the Wairarapa shearing um, two or three years and then after that I went to Australia for two years so you know my one strong memory of Dylan in the, in the late, 70, late late 60s would be weirdly the, listening to Lay Lady Lay on right. the radio yeah, yeah. when Vietnam was really boiling up and local kids were being conscripted in Australia mm. and one young guy from Rocky Gully near where I was working in Franklin River um, the news sort of went around the area like wildfire, you know, that, that he'd been shot he died in Vietnam. So somehow, oddly, that song is in my mind when I think of, you know, Australia, yeah. and, and it's all tied up with Vietnam. Goodness knows how yeah, you yeah. work that out. Yeah. It's just a cultural moment. Yes. Um, but, you know, in some of the songs on Nashville Skyline, they would have been playing. 
but I don't I don't really plug into Dylan again until I go back to university mm. in the early 70s and mm. and start bumping into you know, other students who've got lots of albums and yeah but I still didn't go out and buy one I wasn't really up to what he was doing uh, until Planet Waves came out yeah and for some reason or other, the people that I was knocking around with um, at the time and smoking dope with um, and all this kind of stuff, um, they had these albums, huh. you know. And I had a friend, who, who um, Greg, who he, maybe he brought the album on and said, you should listen to this. Because it was when he dropped off CBS, mm-hmm. you know, in um, Columbia and went to Asylum for that yeah. one record. Yeah. And I thought, oh, what a great album. So I went out to find whatever I could next, and I think I ended up with Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Right, <laughs> which, which would have been a distinct letdown well, in many no. ways, although I've always quite liked that record. I, no, but I, I kind of like it, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I was really, because of things happening in my life at the time and in, in my relationship and various other things, I really got into Planet Waves. There's some great songs on Yeah. Um, and, and great playing, too. And great playing, yeah. Yeah, he had some really good music. Yeah. Um, and so I started buying stuff retrospectively. Yes. Um, and then the following year I got a job um, at a psychiatric hospital in Akataka, Seaview. Um, and about that time, Blood on the Tracks came out. And that was a seminal album for me because everything in my life that seemed to be going on, um, you know, all sorts of good stuff and bad stuff, um, I could find things in there. Um, yeah. They played, they played Tangled Up in Blue on the radio quite a bit. And I went up to Tiramuana um, here in Porirua um, for a social work training course, and I was there for a couple of months. Yeah. And we got one trip home, but it was sort of on the weekends, the people who were um, based in Wellington or nearby would go home. But people who come from outlying areas like me, sort of on most weekends, would stay there. And, mm. and so there's two of us. Mm. Um, and so we turned the radio on. So I remember turning the radio on and they said, oh, there's this new Bob Dylan song. And Tangled Up in Blue came out of the radio and filled the whole kitchen. And for that moment, I think I became a born-again Dylan fan. Right? That actually switched me. Yeah. Because it was a moment in his life, um, and a moment in my life, where a number of things were coalescing. Um, I think that's the, the absolute song that sold me on him. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, I mentioned to you before we recorded that, you know, I mean, I was... I was 13 when I sort of, when Dylan found me through a couple of compilations and obviously he he probably wasn't actually that important in the worldwide landscape but that's probably the lowest point, like the early, late 80s, early 90s is probably his lowest point in terms of meaning something to all but the deeply faithful. Um, but actually it was before that, it was watching just a snippet of Tangled Up and Blue, not even the whole song, but just the storytelling of it. Mm made me go, you know, I'd heard his name obviously, I'd probably heard quite a few of his songs I knew, you know, I knew he was behind Blowing in the Wind and all of that sort of stuff but as a kid, just hearing just one verse of that on a, on a rock and roll documentary, it was it was just I've got to and in fact, I was going to cut in when you were reading those lines and say what, what I guess it speaks to not just your writing but the power of Dylan is that reading that opening poem in that book, I went this is you know, your experience is completely different to mine, and yet I felt a similar emotional resonance and experience around finding Dylan that mm. you that you put across in that book. Mm. And here we are, a generation, you know, I'm a generation younger than you. I grew up in a happy family, my parents still together. Um, I, you know, 
I, <laughs> I've never uh, worked in any kind of manual labour. You know, like my all, so many of my experiences completely different. But this 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 finding this guy and the way his music spoke to me suddenly I was right on board with, you know, how how you found him and how he found you. This book that I was reading on the plane today, um, I had to stop because I got talking to my fellow passenger. Um, that was very interesting. Um, he spends about four pages um, taking Tangled Up in Blue to pieces. Yeah. Because that's the album that got to him. Yeah. And he reads it verse by verse. But, um, you know, this. He, he talks about some of the things that Dylan says in this the persona that that, that, that shift yeah. through the song yeah. and the points of view that shift through the song. Um, well, he, he he swaps out the writing voice, doesn't he? He goes yeah. from first person and to third person. And the personal pronoun. Yeah, you know? yeah. So he's saying, who, who's talking? Who yeah, is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then he, he has a bit of a, um, a laugh at Dylan, the lumberjack. He's the furthest thing mm. in the world from a lumberjack, mm, you know. Mm, mm, mm. He, He's a bit like me. You know, he was living in a dirty, dirty, dirty mining town and he ran away. Yeah. Didn't want to be a dirty miner, right? He wanted to do other things. He <laughs> yeah. had other things to do. I yeah. mean, dirty in the sense of, yes. you know, in the end I had to get down and dirty because I dropped out of school, but um, ended up in a sawmill. But there was no virtue in that. You know, there's no virtue in anybody um, being a particular sort of Dylan fan. You know, I don't care if you're an accountant. If, if he speaks to you with the song, yeah. like, you know, <laughs> um, this this guy went out and bought um, Blood on, not Blood on the Tracks, um, he went out and bought another side of Bob Dylan, which is weird because yeah. that's the same album and I'm yeah. looking far out. Yeah. But can I just read something? Yeah, song? please do. He said, what I found amazing about the record was the narrative content and also the humour. Did people actually do that? Punk had been all about slogans and in the years that followed, lyrics had become a form of shorthand or subtitle to the experiences they described. I hadn't heard a record that told a story that made me laugh since Poisoning Pigeons in the Park. But the music had an edge to it as well, an integrity that went beyond the clacks and harmonica, the knockabout words. Here was a storyteller pulling out all the stops, metaphor, allegory, repetition, precise detail. The songs themselves were written and performed to give the suggestion of spontaneity, improvisation even, but they were too memorable to be anything less than crafted and composed. I could quote them and sing them, though without the original voice and dizzy guitar work, they lost a great deal in translation. In all, I had the impression of someone totally aware of his talent, totally in control of his work. I've often argued that the only skill any writer needs is the ability to see his or her work from the other side. That is, to put himself or herself in the position of the reader. Musicians must be able to do something similar, and I got the instant impression that Dylan, with Dylan, he knew exactly how he sounded in my ears. That's genius, mm. right? Mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't create that. You're born with it, and you develop it. He had something which was innate, yeah. And 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 um, Armitage, Simon Armitage, has got it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I I couldn't explain it any better. Yeah, yeah. What another <laughs> side Bob Dylan did to me. Let's so, let's leave um, Dylan for a yeah, little yeah, bit. Yeah, Although yeah. Uh, you know, as you say, he's there and he's there for both of us, so he's probably going to pop up again. And and I don't mind if he does. But I want to get a little bit into your. I mean, you've already talked to me so many things have come up so I want to go through a little bit of your timeline and your life um, you you're born in England mm. but you don't do you have any memory early memory of that you're out here as a toddler is that only, right only um, sort of narrated memories yes. you know yeah, not yeah. from my mother or my brother reconstructed reconstructed yes. and, and even some of the ones that I remember getting here but so you know mum was born in New Zealand and went back to yeah. England 
as a, as a girl in about 1926, 7, um, in Liverpool. Dad was born in London. They met during the war, they were in the Navy. He was in, on an aircraft carrier, she was a Wren. Blind date, got married, um, had, had two boys, my brother and then me. And after the war, he got out of the, got out of the Navy. Mum was very ill, she nearly died. So he had to you know, basically resign his commission. Um, and so he, he should have stayed in the Navy and been a, you know, been a career, yeah, yeah. career guy, but he had to leave after eight years. And he, he kind of lost his, they have some sort of pension advantage if you stay for this. What you, he, didn't, he didn't sign on, he signed on for 10 years, he didn't mm. complete, so he lost a bit of money. Um, and he didn't really like being a civilian. Uh, and then a couple of years later, apparently my grandmother spotted an advertisement in the paper saying ex-Royal Naval Officers and Personnel Ratings wanted for service in the New Zealand Navy because they were recruiting people over there at that yeah. time yeah. to build up and build up numbers but also to help crew the frigates they were buying. Mm. There was a whole, I don't know how many hundreds of frigates and cruisers were st stacked up there in Scotland, surplus to requirements in the <laughs> World War. Um, they bought six frigates as a job lot. Um, lock class frigates and sailed them out to New Zealand one by one. So Dad's, Dad joined the New Zealand Navy and sailed out in one of the frigates and they, we, they, we waited another six months or eight months and they, then they brought the families out. Yeah. Um, so we ended up um, sailing out on the Rangatiki and crossed the line, met Neptune, all that stuff. Yeah. Went through the Panama Canal. Yeah. Wish I could remember it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so we were immigrants, basically. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the pommy wave after the Second World and War. settling on the West Coast? Or well, we, we, we went to Auckland first. Right. He was in the Navy and yeah, got yeah. sent to Korea. Yeah. So um, my first memories are of, are of um, Howick, Looking out across the water, Rangitoto, then up in um, Bayswater, where we got a state house, um, and then after that, Dad got a transfer down to Christchurch, um, left the navy in '55, uh, and we ended up joining the railways and going to the west coast. So we ended up in a little railway settlement called Nahiri, yeah. on the on the on the Grey Valley line up to Reefton, and someone must have said to him, you know, after many. Many, many nights getting a wet ass out on the track gang, you know, what, not, not well paid, not much fun. Um, all the jobs in the coal mines over in Blackpool, Bill, more money there, you know. And he went and got a job in the coal mine. Yeah. So that's basically the, in, in short. Yeah, um, yeah. So um, we ended up on, from a state house in Christchurch, we ended up railway house in Nahiri, then they bought a house in Blackpool. Yeah. Mm. And you... <sighs> You mentioned you're a, you're, a, you're a bright student, you have this Dylan epiphany, you get into writing. What else is going on in your childhood around that stuff that's that's of value to you now, that's of significance and of memory? Well, I wrote, I wrote something once about, um, probably about the experience of going to the coasts um, and, and just, just little short vignettes. What they talk about really going back into the 19th century. Yeah. Because, and I've thought more about this poem now um, and what it's trying to say. And in a sense, you know, by moving to New Zealand, um, my parents moved backwards in time mm. from London, mm. okay? And by moving from Auckland to Christchurch and then Christchurch to the West Coast. Back in all, were, step, all little steps back in time. It was going back in time yep. and technology yeah. and community and culture. Yes. So, okay, the West Coast in 1957, 60, roughly when we moved mm. there, 
is 100 years on from the gold rushes, okay. But the culture, as you probably realise, is very distinct yeah. from, from mainstream New Zealand. Mm. You know, it's a bit of a fortress culture over there. Just physically, you're cut off. You only have a couple of ways in there, except by sea or, the, or air. Yeah. Um, and the people are particular sort of people because of the, what you survive on. Um, so I guess we moved back in time um, and that, that changed my world for me. Uh, it gave me, in a sense, you know, a rural background, uh, but not a provincial background. It was a radical background. Mm. Living in a coal mining town, they were you know, committed unionists, Labour Party, there's a good sprinkling of communists, you know, um, and, and the union was strong, you know, the town had a unity. I learnt about community, you know. Um, I also learned about, about, about gossip, backbiting, <laughs> hundred and one other things. But yeah. they, they, you know, they became my people, and yet we were outsiders. So, you know, Dad was English. We used to get the Daily Mirror, you know, sent over by sea. Um, it's weird reading an English newspaper in a town like Blackpool in <laughs> 1962 or three. Yeah. You know, and you're reading about the Profumo affair yeah. and Andy Cap and the British soccer, you know, results and and the, the Labour Party and Britain and. What's that got to do with me? But yeah. we read it anyway, and we read everything. Um, lots of comics, you know, Tiger, Lion, The Eagle, yeah. you know, so all this. Um, and so I had, a, I had a very fortunate kind of intelligent working class culture surrounding me. You know, a lot of those men had never been to very far past high school. Um, they, they hadn't had a lot of choice, particularly my father's generation. Um, but they were all readers, you know. Um, there were how many libraries? Well, the school had a little library, but the National Library Service had a little local library in the Blackpool Workingmen's Club. Yeah. Um, which is called the Workingmen's Club and Mutual School of Arts. Mm. So that meant you could play darts and borrow books. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and 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 there was also so the National Library Service would come and restock the library, and then there was a, a private lending library which would come up from Greymouth every two or three weeks, mm. and so you could, you know, the, this Bedford van with a cab on the back and books on either side, and Mum would go out and you'd pick your books, and so I started reading um, history books mainly, books about um, the war, <laughs> yeah, because um, I you know I was fed, fed on war comics and all yeah, that yeah, stuff, yeah. Um, and the war films and at the time were pretty much 1950 stuff, the Dam Busters, yeah, you know, um, Carver Name with Pride, yeah, etc. So um, the, the the Japanese and the Germans were sort of mythical figures who were like you know enemies, um, and we used to play war games in the bush, cowboys, all that stuff. You had a freedom uh, just to come home from school. You know, Take, take your flash clothes off, get in your old clothes and just disappear yeah. down the bush and come back at tea time. And literally, you know, there are plenty of opportunities to, to drown, yeah. you know, or fall down a hole, you know, or get run over by a train, <laughs> or fall in the Grey River. We, we, <laughs> we just were wild. Yeah. You know, we, we were possum trapping. So it was very much, you know, if you think of like Raymond Carver and his short stories and some of that, you know, like, like the film Deliverance. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating to say it was very much like that frontier. That's kind of my understanding of it. That's yeah, exactly yeah. it. Yeah. It was a bit of a frontier. So, <laughs> you know, and there, lot, and there were lots of characters there. Um, yeah. You know, characters like old Dick Moth, who was a, um, a a fruit seller from up in the Golden Bay, was a committed communist. And when I left, when I dropped out of high school after an argument with my headmaster and 
my dad said, if you do that, you've got to go to work, and he got me a job in a sawmill. I was writing letters to newspapers then about Vietnam and saying how, you know, we shouldn't be there and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and next minute, there's a knock on the door, and Vic had come down delivering fruit, uh, as he used to do at a certain time of year, um, door-to-door seller, and, and he... Um, had read the letter in the paper, yeah. so he came and knocked on the door because he thought he had a recruit. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, amazing guy, you know, yeah. lifelong, why was he a communist? This, yeah. is, this is something I'm thinking about at the moment. Yeah. He's on my mind. So, you know, there are all sorts of what, what you'd really call characters. You, you know, if you think of a William Faulkner scene where you have these people, you know, so yeah. there were so many advantages there, but I couldn't stay there. Mm. And this is one of the things that I discovered when I went to Hibbing and had a look around. Dylan was from there in a very similar environment, you know. So yeah. it's on your mind to work out what what made him exit there and why he had to exit. And... Well, I, I just wanted to go there. I, yeah. was, I was 500 miles away and it seemed ridiculous, but you could hire a car, it took me a day. Yeah. You know, it was great. I drove Driving around America is awesome, right? Like going anywhere there. It's, it's yeah. an experience yeah. when you, you know, when you um, live in little old New Zealand. So, you know, I wrote I wrote that poem, yes. that road poem. Yeah. Um, really. Um, these vignettes of the trail of the journey mm. and, and what I what I found there. Yeah. Um, but one thing I did find is that there are a lot of similarities between my my childhood world and his. Yes. Okay. And I can also see why he would have had to have left it. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've all got to leave somewhere. You know, he had he had he had more material supercharging him. Yeah. You know, than it, yeah. at that time than probably I did. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and more capacity to invent himself than I would ever realise was possible. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I think I think that world gave me a base that I know the world is gone, but it hasn't exactly gone either. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't think you know every every writer I think writes out of childhood, even if, even if they end up being a language poet, you know, and it doesn't seem like anything they're doing has anything to do with yeah, where yeah. they came from in, in Newark or Patterson, New Jersey, you know. But it's all down there somewhere. Yeah, I was just going to say it's like what you were saying about trying to describe influence. What are those? What are those key sets of influences for people that's mulling around in their head as their hometown and their yeah. upbringing, right? Like whether it's overtly referenced or not, it's it's all grist for the mill. Well, here's, you know, I went I went back to Blackpool um, when I was social working at Seaview in the 1970s, and um, I, I I bought this this um, white white denim jeans and white denim jacket. Yeah. <laughs> you did lots of things back then which are quite questionable. But I went, you know, I, I was walking around Blackpool with a friend of mine we'd revisited and we walked past the door of the Workingmen's Club um, just as a, a local figure, a rather huge man called Stonewall Jackson, who was one of my dad's mining mates, came out of the door and looked at me and said, Jesus Christ, Jeffrey, I thought you was Jesus Christ. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, Stonewall, okay, that's just me. All right. You know. <laughs> I mean, that, that sort of anecdote just reminds me of what sort of people they were. You know, mm. they, were, they were larger than life. Yeah. Like, I wrote that series of Black Bull sonnets about yes. people in the town, which is an attempt to recreate that, that whole culture and experience. You know, and there's one about this old guy called Taz Turner who drives down to the post office with his Wolseley 444, revving the guts out of it, right? Because yeah. he's deaf. Yeah. And he can't hear that he's in second gear. <laughs> You know, and then these two other old men, you know, who walk down past the post office mm. picking up butts. Um, and the poem ends with, you know, um, Taz was a pigeon fancier. I think he was probably Australian, actually, with a name like Taz, but who knows. 
um, and and he had tumbler pigeons. And my friend Frank, who lived next door, Taz lived there and behind this huge um, clump of bamboo surrounding his house. And I'd be up there with Frank and we'd be talking about stuff and looking at his motorbike while he was repairing it. And all of a sudden there'd be this whoosh and these tumbler pigeons would come flying up out of out of the bamboo. Yeah, right? yeah. Incredible image. Um, and that was a lot of the working class stuff was to do with making your own world, making your own you know, pigeon fancying was a working class route from England. So tell me about your um you you've referenced a handful of different roles that you've um, fulfilled jobs I mean um, how do you move through those and that there's some very different sort of types of work here from land working sharing to you, you referenced uh, working in a mental hospital mm. um, and the sort of um, you know they're, they're two very distinct <laughs> sets of things, working the land and animals and then working very directly with people and people's mental health and people's... It's a, it's a good question, isn't it? I mean, you might look at it and think, what was wrong with this guy? <laughs> well, I just, I just, I just want to I, I um, yeah. understand the connection between them. I'm sure we can make one, but um, how it happened for you? Well, I think you know, some, some connections you might make are kind of um, retrospective. Yes. Um, and, like... I didn't, you know, when you're 15 or 16, you're not always in control of all your impulses and decisions you make. That's why you have parents still, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and like when I when I decided to leave school, I was in the sixth, seventh form as it would be now. Yeah. I'd got my UE, we were plan, planning to go to university because that's what the bright kids did and you didn't know what the hell university was, but anyway. Um, and I went back and it was a good year because you're top, you know, you're the cream that are isn't yeah. the top. Yeah. Um, but the headmaster was obstructive to me, really. He... I didn't want to keep on doing bookkeeping, but because I wasn't good at it, but yeah. because I got it credited, he said you have to keep going. It was just silly, and I just didn't like him. And I said, well, you know, I don't want to do this. Can I do something else? There, there's nothing else in the stream. You know, you can't. You have to do bookkeeping or physics. Well, I couldn't do physics. Um, it was sort of silly. Um, I said, well, you know, I'll do correspondence. Could I do Latin or, or Maori? Mm. You know? mm. And he said, no, we're not allowing that. Mm. And I said, well, if I can't do it, I'll leave. Bang, right? Because yeah. I'd, I'd fronted him yeah. and I couldn't back down. So I went home and said to my parents, uh, I don't want to do what this guy's telling me to do, you know, it doesn't make sense. Uh, I want to leave school. And that's what my father said, Well, if you leave, you've got to get a job. He was a depression kind of kid. Mm. Fair enough. I'm not keeping you. Um, and I said, Okay. So yeah, shortly, go out and earn your cake. Yeah. Shortly yeah. thereafter, he went, to the, he went up the pub. Um, and and was talking to a couple of guys and uh, maybe he asked around I don't know but um, there was a sawmill a small family sawmill near Red Jacks run by the Donaldson family and he was talking to Porky Donaldson and he said yeah yeah send him over we'll give him a job you know we need a new skiddy yeah so he ended up as a skiddy on a sawmill hauling the you know hauling the logs off the truck when they came mm. down from up the bush mm. beautiful Rimu logs sacrilege now mm. and washing them and hauling them in and cutting them into lengths and they were rolled onto the breaking down bench where they were cut into slabs, etc, etc. Yeah. So suddenly, I be, you know, from being a schoolboy, um, I became a reluctant sawmiller and 
I have to say, within a few weeks, I wished I was back at school because yeah, it was yeah. hard work. My hands were blistered from starting the chains. It was bloody cold. Yeah. You know, but I backed myself into a corner. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of my decisions, Simon, were like that. You know, <laughs> they were they were taken in the spur of the moment and had consequences. But um, the sharing thing was my brother was up north sharing by then, and he said. Um, he knew I was trying to save money to go to Varsity because that was still the yeah, plan. Yeah. So this is '65. Um, so he said, "Well, you know, if you come up here, it's, it's, it's ten bob an hour, ten shillings an hour. You know, more than I was getting. You could save more money in, in the three months of the season. So that's what I did. That's how I got on the gangs um, and came home with with, with, with something of a cheque. I'd spent a bit of it, obviously, um, and put the money in the bank and was going to head off to Varsity." Um, stayed with some people in Christchurch, got a job in a timber yard until the, the term started. Um, went to varsity for about six weeks later. I left. Couldn't stand it. Yeah. You know. I mean, I've been I've been out with young kids. I've been driving around in Zephyrs. Yeah. Been drinking. You know. I was free, and then I was back in class again with people talking about all this stuff that seemed remote to my interests. Worthy as it was, yeah. I was in a philosophy tutorial. You know, why did I take philosophy? I don't know because it sounded important. <laughs> um, so I was, you know, and I was still a bit smart and arrogant. Yeah, and yeah. I said to the tutor, oh. I mean, all this stuff seems to me, you know, these arguments go on ad nauseum. He said, I prefer to say ad infinitum. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like he was closing my head down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was living with this landlady by this time who would only allow me two or three baths a week and played. Um, the concert program obsessively yeah. and I'd be in my bedroom trying to read these books um, feeling very cut off and lonely and I would hear this music coming through um, and dear Mrs Sanders you know she was good landlady and was reasonable rent but it was the kitchen you know the lounge the bathroom and my little bedroom and my books and then I'd get on my bike in the morning and ride into Varsity and, and try and beat the Eastley coming home um, so I bought a car bought an old Austin mm went home resigned <laughs> and then I, then I had to do something with it so I went back up the North Island and um, worked as a rouseabout did a bit of scrub cutting back on the shearing gang next year yeah. so you know I'd, I'd, I'd gone back I'd gone back blue collar because it was what I knew yeah yeah um and I did a bit of writing, sort of diary. Yeah, that was my next question. Yeah. I was just going to jump in and say, yes. what's happening with your writing? Are you are you noting things down? Are you you're working with some pretty colourful characters? Are they mm. are they getting immortalised by you in any sort of way? Not then no, not, 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 I, wrote, I wrote a diary for a while. I know they are now. Yeah, like yeah, the yeah. last ten yeah. years. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, they were they were getting written down in here. That's exactly you know, in like, your head. Like, like yeah. people that people like. Um, uh, someone nameless who was the ganger on one of the gangs, you know, uh, the head man, yeah, the lead chair yeah. and the guy who sort of organised the contract and got you from place to place, you know, used to amuse himself by, by when you were bending over in front of him picking up a fleece from another shear by par by pushing his handpiece on your backside and going Yahoo, you know, um, and you'd, you'd jump, you know, yeah, it was, yeah. was, was the, was the Raz, it was nailing the apprentice in the barrel, yes, you know, the initiation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so he's pretty unforgettable. Yeah. Um, but he got he got dealt to one one, one day at another shed by um, a young Māori woman who was aroused about for us, and uh, he did that to her, and um, um, in, in, in an immortal piece of choreography, she turned round, raised her broom, and smashed it over his back. I said, "Don't you ever do that to me again!" <laughs> and all these young realities like us go behind her hands. Ha ha ha! He got it. <laughs> you know that was the kind of 
some of the people that I work with yeah, that yeah. sort of bully, right? Yeah. Um, and you didn't have a lot of comeback. Yeah. Um, because you had to take it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I met people like that. I also met, you know, really kindly, helpful people, the farming family I stayed with, the people who put me up, you know, my brother's friends when I went there. Um, made some really, really good friends. But it was it was a phase. Yeah. And I could see that now. Yeah. I had to go through that stuff. You know, I had to get out of there eventually and my brother went to Australia, met an Australian girl, got engaged. Uh, I ended up on the west coast doing a bit of shearing, ran out of money. My shiv that turns up, my fifty two shiv that turns up in one of those palms, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, cost me so much money in repairing the engine, I had to sell it <laughs> to pay the bill. So, you know, I was broken in nineteen sixty eight, the Wahini flood had just been through town. Um, <laughs> My mother had left my father the year before. We were in this old house in Greymouth. I had no money, no prospects. I thought, I think I'd better go to Australia. <laughs> I had to borrow the money of my mother. Yeah. You know, you, you can't really see a plan in this, you know. It's, no. <laughs> it's very much... <laughs> yeah, re reacting to... Yeah, off, off the cuff. Yeah. And so I ended up over there. And But it was in Australia, to probably to get to your question, where I started writing again. And I was still in contact with Peter Hooper. Yeah. Um, who I became, who'd become a friend outside of school. Um, I was writing to him and, and writing, writing the odd poem. I came home for, for a holiday and then went back again. And the second time I went back, I went on the Indian Pacific train ride across. The first time I'd flown over to Sydney on the DC-8, um, got on the train to Melbourne, and got Melbourne, Port Perry, Adelaide, with different gauges, you had to change yeah. trains about four times. So this train went through Broken Hill, um, and I wrote a poem about that trip, just called Indian Pacific. Um, and I think it was probably in response to a book I picked up in the local um, store and gown license where I was boarding. I boarded with this family who were the, they were the parents of my brother's fiancée. Yeah. They broke up. But to, to, get to, to get to the, the, yeah. the poetry was a long, long yeah, kind of yeah, journey. Yeah. But, but you, you were building all these experiences the whole time, right? So then when you do get to it... They had a... They had a bookstore, one of those one of those carousels, mm. you know. It was mostly westerns and magazines come. I mean, I used to read Wheels magazine, you know, God save us, yeah. for entertainment. Because um, by the time you'd done a hard day's work and had a few beers and sat around the fire looking at the AFL replays, yeah. <laughs> and learning about Aussie rules, you, you know, I wasn't doing a lot of reading. Right, yeah, um, yeah. Really yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, but um, they had, I found a book on the bookstore was that sort of thing where the, someone would come in from Gordon and Gotch it used to be in New Zealand mm. and they do the books for you yeah, right? yeah. they knew what you wanted and they just put it on there but someone had managed to slip in this book called Poems from Poetry and Jazz in Concert and they were poems from a series that was done in the 60s um, at, at South Bank um, at, the, at the South Bank Centre all these English poets Ted Hughes you know all sorts of people yeah. reading to the public, and then they would put the book out afterwards. Some of the poems that they would they'd read, and they had jazz played in between the poems. Of course, you didn't get the jazz, but you you had I had a poetry anthology. Yeah. So I thought that looks interesting, and I bought it. So I read all these poems. And I think that's where I started writing poetry. Yeah, again. right, right. Just, and then I gave up being in Australia. I've I'd, I'd, I'd kind of fallen in love with a New Zealand girl, and decided I should go home. And um, came back home and went to visit. 
um, visited her, of course, but I went yeah. to visit, stayed with my mum who moved house in Greymouth, and um, got a job in the forestry, unemployment. Again, it was just because I needed a job. Yeah. And I went to see Peter and we had a bit of a chat, and um, he said, oh, I'm going to do a little booklet of my friend's poems. Can I put your Indian Pacific poem in there? And I said, yeah, sure. So he published this booklet called A Pleasure of Friends, which yeah. is a self-published thing. Um, so that, that was kind of nice. Uh, and then he said, oh, you might be interested in this, Jeff." He said, um, he said, there's this, this new book by this Māori poet, Hone Tuwhare. He said, uh, you might like this. Um, and I bought another, another book of poetry, which was Pastanak's, um, Boris Pastanak's poems, actually, because he wrote poetry as well as novels. Um, so I took these two books home and just sort of devoured them. Um, and I don't remember much about Pastanak, one or two poems I liked. But Honey Tufare, he did it. Yeah, I was just gonna say that was He it. did it. Because he was like Adrian Riches talking about Dylan. Mm. He was the voice of a, of, a, of, a, of a whole range of New Zealanders. Yeah. That he was this working class communist, mm. boilermaker, smart guy, you know. But he was Māori, he was a Māori speaker. Yeah. He'd come from poverty, he was self educated. Self educated, yeah, yeah. yeah. Marxist, yeah. Left, left the party. That you know, the working class intellectual, yes. genuine, minted. He was the real thing, yeah. and his voice told you that. Yeah. You know, his, his poems about 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 floods, about drunks on buses, about yeah. tonguies, about love affairs. He actually yeah. slept with a nun in that poem. <laughs> he was real, yeah. you know. Yeah. And this beautiful Hotiri cover, mm. you know. Mm. Um, so, I started writing poems, um, and then I met my first wife again. Um, I'd known her at school. She was at Varsity. She came to Greymouth. Um, we got involved and she said, you should go back to university. I was planning to join child welfare actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been accepted and I was going to go to be a child welfare officer in Blenheim. Yeah. And I fell in love, wrote them a letter and said, sorry, I can't come now. So it's, it's very chaotic, isn't it? Yeah. It's <laughs> it's <very> well, <laughs> it's fascinating to me because um, you've got this track record now of in academia and, and of your own writing mm. and I'm really interested in, in the, I guess rambling path that you've gone down to get there which I just see you know, I mean I've, we've only just met I, I've read some of your work but we only just met an hour ago when, you, when I opened the door to you but from what I know about your work and your potted biography is that well, I guess like anyone, but these experiences so hugely shape what you now, I mean it's very clear and I was thinking about, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was how your books tend to just, tend to all be like you kind of arrive at a series of things, you, a particular thing you want to focus on through a series of poems. So there's the mining poems, you've referenced the plain ones, there's a book of earthquake poems, now we've got the Dylan poems if you like, which and all of them are aspects of yourself throughout them, but you, they're not just like a, a themed book of poems, it's an actual mindset that I imagine you must get yourself into and that you wish to explore? Well, the first book um, came out in 74, which was a shared book with an American poet called Dave, David Walker, who, when I went to university and, mm. and started writing a lot, 
by comparison. Um, he was my American Studies tutor, and I showed him some poems, and he gave me a very scathing criticism of them. You know, yeah. more more or less saying give up. You know. yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, he just said he wrote things like, hmm, um, if more means less than less. Um, I think you should throw that rose out with last night's bathwater. Um, hmm, he said, I think of Mandelstam who spent a whole evening trying to persuade a non-poet to non-poem. What's this guy telling me? You know. Um, but but you know, I was I was dogged. I was like the I was like um, Robert Lowell going and putting a tent on on Randall on mm. what's his name's lawn down in the south of America somewhere. I've forgotten his name. Alan Tate. Yes. Right. I was I was like Brodsky. Going and knocking on Auden's door in Switzerland, and saying, yeah. "I want you, I want you." You know, I wanted it. Yeah. I knew I wanted it. Didn't know why, but I wanted it. Yeah. So, I mean, what what I think an artist wants is themselves, right? Yeah. To be to be liberated enough to be able to talk to another person. Yeah. Um, if you're any kind of artist at all, if you're not going to communicate, why bother? Yeah. You know, you might as well just go and sit in a hole and eat a pie. I re I'm really serious, you know. Ultimately, if there's not some communication going on, you're not you're not fully experiencing the richness of being human. So, I, I wanted someone to help me tell these stories. Yeah. Um, to talk, you know, I like, like the blabby kidding comes home from school. Oh, mum, look at this happened. Look at that happened. She's saying yes, dear, yes, dear. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I realise now that I was doing that from when I was a very little kid. Um, I've been obsessed with birds all my life. You know, anything that flies, I can see it and pick it out. It's like that. It's a term in social psychology called salience. That once you've seen a thing, you know you can't unsee it. Yeah. Um, you know, like I know that that was probably an Armstrong Sidley. He's driving around and up there in that yeah, direction yeah. home poster. Who yeah. knows? It looks like one. Um, could be a Bentley, but it looks more like an Armstrong Sidley. That's what I mean. That's yeah, salience. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'd seen these birds when I was a little kid and become entranced by them. Um, and I ran home to my mother and said, Mum, 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 I saw this bird and it was gold and silver and all this stuff, you know? And she just said, yes, dear, that's nice. You know, <laughs> I've seen a goldfinch, yeah. probably, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, it, to me, the point I'd reached was I needed to find some way to say what, what, I, what I'd seen. Not, not just what I knew or what I thought was a good idea, but to talk about what I'd seen. Um, and, and David helped me push through that door by saying you should read some more people get yeah. serious he said here's here's a list here's a list you know, yeah, yeah, right? yeah he said pablo neruda try him cesar vallejo try him right you should try osip mandelstam read some mandelstam right you know read a bit of george trakel you know okay um yeah read a bit of gonchorov and read oblomov and these are names you're hearing for the first time most of them i yeah. imagine on that list and you go and find them like a like a good little good little student I and you books. get something from all of them in some way or other like obviously some yeah. of them speak to you more than others but the process is important well, we're going we're going to um to europe in a few weeks uh, my son is over there in holland and and one of the things we're going to do is we're going to go to paris after we've been to holland um, and I'm going to go to César Vallejo's grave in Montmartre. Yeah, right. You know, because mm. he's important to me. You know, yeah. I read his stuff, and to begin with, I didn't know what to make of it. You know, he was he was Peruvian. He was um, a Catholic. He was a Marxist. He was a surrealist. But you know, the poems just the language. He wrote poems about coal miners and peasants. He wrote poems about about um, just the, the difficulty of being human but in a language that's um, 
David Walker thought, he thought Vallejo was the greater poet than Neruda, but Neruda was so massive. Neruda's a, Neruda's a continent. Yeah. You know? um, and I think in Neruda's poems, I saw the frontier of New Zealand lineated again because it was a marine environment, it was a, a, a forest environment, you know, it had, it had, it had an indigenous people, um, it had wild beasts, well, we obviously we didn't have anaconda, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Neruda was, and he talked about, he talked about love and he talked about politics and revolution and, you know, all sorts of political stuff as well as the natural world. And it was like, you couldn't, I couldn't get enough of him. Yeah. You know, was completely different. Mm. Yeah. Um, so apart from um, Tufari, you haven't mentioned New Zealand poets particularly. I mean, you know, a couple of people uh, that you sort of worked with and early published and stuff, but when do you respond more regularly to New Zealand poetry? Or do you? Well, that well, yeah, I do, and that, it, mm. it happened at, right at that very moment because yeah. um, Baxter yeah. just came into my life. Um, partly, for, partly because in a in a personal way, um, he was in the news. You know, the truth would be yeah. rubbishing him because of his his, his his free love commune and yeah, all this yeah. stuff. But his books began to come out, and I was I was friends with a few people um, who were who were writing, like Gary Langford, who lived in a flat downstairs, um, and he would be giving me poetry books. Um, and then we, we my, my, my wife and I moved into a big shared flat up on Papanui Road, which was related to the Chippenham Commune. Um, we weren't part of Chippenham, but we had this sort of relationship. We would share meals together and stuff. And most of the people in that flat were, were, were students who were finishing their, 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 their degrees and were going to move on in the next year or two. One was David Young, journalist, and his, and his um, friend David Waddington, who was a photographer, and they were publishing the Fragment series. And they published people like Gary, like Peter Hooper, um, and then and then me and Dave Walker. Um, and so I was bumping into more people who knew more poets. You know, Robin Dudding was starting Islands at that yeah. time, and he had turned up at the house one day. Lots of people would come through the house. David was a journalist on the Star, so he would bring people home. Yeah. Um, and uh, he just Robin, Robin Dudding had basically just dropped out of Island um, landfall and started Islands. I didn't know who the hell he was. Yeah, yeah. So copies of Islands began appearing in the house. Yeah. You know, and Baxter sort of became into the com came into the conversation. Yeah. You know, about about the same time as Sixto Rodriguez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. there's a whole thing going on there. Um, and and uh, I I don't know which which of his books I bought first. Probably maybe Jerusalem Sonnets, and because I was reading Cantor, yeah. Cantor was a much different animal than it is now. It was full of comment, political arguments. Poetry, you know, liter literary criticism, yeah, all sorts. It was a newspaper, yeah, rather, rather than just a little tabloid that it is now, yeah. Um, and so, next thing, Baxter appears on campus. The news is that Baxter's going to be speaking inside the. It's now the Ducks Deluxe, but it was the Students' Association. Yeah. yeah. So you know, all, we all went to see him. Well, lots of us went to see him because he was kind of notorious. We knew much about his poetry. And so here's this little guy. Know, this long strip here, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and, and an old sports coat, and no shirt. Yeah. I don't think hairy, hairy, shrunken chest, <laughs> rosary, baggy trousers, no shoes, and his, I think his, I think his belt was probably a tie, and he's standing there talking about um, what's wrong with the bourgeois world and you know the difference between Māori and Pākehā and um, 
preaching, well, I was preaching a sermon against abortion, mm. you know, mm. um, because he was this Catholic convert by then. But he was kind of magnetising, you know. Yeah. He had charisma. Yeah. <laughs> it was like St Francis had jumped up in front of you out yeah, of mm. the grave. <laughs> and then a bit later on, um, I, I saw him in the, in the calf and he was talking to two or three people. Uh, young students and they were all acolyting him, you know. And I wanted to go over there and sit there with them, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and tell this guy that I was a poet or I wanted to write poetry, or, yeah. you know. Um, and probably the others were too. Um, but then he wrote a really scathing poem about that sort of person, an ode to Auckland, <laughs> yes, so I'm glad yes. I didn't. <laughs> but anyway, you know, but then I, I got him, so I went out and, and, and started started buying the other books. Yeah. Um, and so he became a really big influence on me. Um, yeah. And I remember. Um, I think Autumn Testament, um, or Jerusalem. No, I think it's Autumn Testament. There's a poem in there for for his wife Jackie Sturm, um, um where he's you know mourning the fact that he's up there and she's down there in Wellington, and he wants her to come to Jerusalem, which was never going to happen. Um, and when he died, they had a memorial service to him, and I think it was in February the following year in '73 in Cranmer Square. Big, mm. lots of people were there reading, um, heaps of people. Um, and um, so I went along with a cop my copy and, and stood up with my, my long hair and my psychological problems and, 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 and blasted out this poem for Baxter. Yeah. You know. But I mean I was actually I was actually mourning my own circumstances as much as I was mourning Baxter. Um, we'll pass over that. But you know, there's a lot of identification with, with, with what was going on in that poem. Mm. So I began to internalise his 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 um, his sonnets. Yeah, um, and the Black Bull Sonnets is a kind of riff. I thought that you a know, riff on on what the Jerusalem Sonnets. I did, I did, I did make that connection when I was um, revisiting those earlier this week, thinking, um, you know, has this come from Baxter? Just, yeah. just from, you know, him being a towering presence in that sense. Yeah, I, you know, I, I wrote him into my life, and I had yeah. to eventually had to write him out, in the sense of, you know, Patrick Evans, who's a good friend of mine. Taught me and has really been very supportive of both my prose work, you know, and, and, and the poetry now. Yeah. You know, he says he, he said that you know, poets need a strong ancestor. Yeah. You know, uh, to to sort of it's like a supportive pole in which to climb up. But eventually, you know, you have to internalise that person and then kind of not kill them, but step beyond them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he said that's the point of maturation where you either reach it or you don't, and and. And nobody really knows whether you have or you haven't, but um, you you hope you can because otherwise you're just going to be a, a Baxter groupie, right? That's right. It's about um, seeding to get your actual voice, isn't yeah. it? So I think what 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 actually helped me there was um, getting out of the city again, eventually, and 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 going to the coast and bumping into more people and having more experiences over there when I worked at Seaview. Um, you know, I mean, I think I got that job basically because. I'd, I'd been in that blue-collar world for so long and I'd end up as a rubbish man for the council, you know. It was like a dead end. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had to get out of it. And some people that I met persuaded me that I should do something else in my life. So I still had half a degree. And when I applied for the job, I was the only person with any university experience. So they hired me rather than local nurses, psychiatric nurses, who thought they'd get the job. But anyway, I wasn't a trained social worker. Um, and really it was a interesting career move which which lasted about two and a half years and I for various reasons I had to get out yeah. including the drugs yeah. um, but I met some really amazing people at that time and 
this guy Bill that turns up in the poem about, about the tangi for Abel, he was Bill Matheson, Jay Carver, and he was he was a, a patient at Siva and a client of mine, um, and I helped him, or not, by befriending him rather than being a professional, yeah. and we became very close friends. And after I left, um, resigned from Seaview, you know, we were already smoking dope together on the weekends. So it's yeah. a very, very yeah. unhealthy relationship yes. in terms of professionally helping somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was, I was, I was in a sense, not a lot more healthier than he was. Probably a bit more, or quite a bit more. But you know, in, in need of help myself, um, and um, I met this. Almost at the end of my social work career, I met this um, doctor, this doctor up in Karamea who was doing a locum, a guy called Jack Ballon, who was a renowned psychotherapist. But he was up there because he had a terminal illness. He was dying of cancer. So he'd gone there to help out, be the locum at Karamea while he'd while his, passed his last, his last days and months um, collecting ferns. Mm. He was a bit of a... <laughs> A fern collector. So I went to visit him about a client that was up there. Mm. I've had a referral to Karamea, which is the strangest place to do a social work visit. I have to tell you, it's like going to Conan Doyle's Lost World over these mountains. <laughs> you kind of feel like it's the end of the road, right? Yeah, you can't yeah. go any further. Yeah. So I went in to talk to Jack about this this, this patient who returned to the district, <clears throat> and he told me about his experiences, you know, dealing with this person, and advised me where the real problem was. It wasn't her; it was the husband, you know. <laughs> And um, so we chatted and chatted and he showed me his ferns um, and as we walked out he said, you know, he said, when I first met you, he said, I thought you were a bit of a facade. He said, but you're not. He said, you're a charade. And he laughed and walked away. <laughs> he just shot me straight through, right? Yeah. He'd seen that I was actually the walking wounded yeah. and I needed, I needed help as much as the people I was trying to help. Mm. In other words, you were saying to me, get real, for goodness sake, get your life together, mm. do whatever you're meant to do on the planet, stop play acting. Stop being the codependent, the little helper, you know, which I learned at my mother's apron. Yeah. Um, so he did me a big favour, which, which pissed me off at the time. I, mean, <laughs> I was insulted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of, but he, because I haven't forgotten it, you can see, it was like that thing in that book by Sheldon Cop. if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Right? Mm -hmm. I met the Buddha and the Buddha killed me. You know. <laughs> um, and that was the start of, I think, Kind of, I can see now that something I read speakly, that remark was the start of, sort of me coming out of that, 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 that charade that he pointed to. And just giving up on respectability and, and just going full tilt into the, into the whole alternative, hippie, drug thing and just saying to hell with it, you know. Um, but that wasn't going to help either, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, that was as much the problem as, as trying to be the, the good little social worker. Um, what I needed to do was to be a writer, yeah. But I, actually, but I couldn't. I didn't know how to do it. Yeah. Um, so if you you're kind of looking at the career path, it's a whole series of, if you like, false starts. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Steps on a ladder. Yeah. Um, and you don't need to acquire material to learn how to write. But if you are, if you are making <laughs> mistakes, in some sense, that's still like material gathering. <laughs> that's how you can uh, not just justify that, but that's how you can see a silver lining or something in those mistakes, right? Well, I could, I could, I could, I could, I could waste a whole heap of my time acquiring material, and you get someone like you know, when Maxwell in England, it doesn't seem to need to acquire any of that material mm. and produces amazing poetry, but he doesn't write about what I know. You know, he can't write for me. Yeah. Um, the only person who can write for me and the people of my world, that's me. Um, so, Well, this is uh, what I've found with your work, is uh, that your, your uh, 
you know, I, I guess it's a separate four-hour-long conversation about whether all poetry is autobiographical or not. Yeah. Um, but let's just assume that it is on 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 at least some level. And um, your sort of potted biography comes through in nice little glimmers in your work, rather than it being all and entirely about you. You have this kind of observational and historical context that you work towards that's wider than just yourself, but you're on every page. Well, I'm in a sense you are on every page because of like like, like style and your limitations yeah. of, of, of technique you and know, your voice and your voice, um, your, your your voice print. But you know, there's there's, there's a poem in here, for instance, in the um, Hard Rain series, which yeah, he, 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 he sings in the song, I saw, I saw a, a baby with wild wolves all around him. Yeah. We, we had to take those complete lines out because there's a possibility that something might come after you if you don't get attribution. Yes. You know? yeah. So we just we just shrunk them down. Yeah. Nobody can complain about diamonds with nobody. You know, they can't say that's a Dylan line. Yeah. Um, but this poem, Baby with Wolves, can I read it? Yeah, please yeah, Okay. Um, baby with Wolves. It was a bad year to be born anywhere, no change there. She carried you up the mountain with the rest of the village. The horsemen had come before and they came again. The hamlet empty, the houses burned, the animals slaughtered. You lived and she lived just long enough to find a ship. Far away and long ago, she sewed buttons in another country. When the factory burned, your aunt alone was left to raise you. A man who lived to write her songs. Your skin still shivers to klezmer music. So, it's, so for me, that's nothing to do with me. No. Right? That's me looking at, some, at, a, at an archetypal figure or figures in the great Jewish diaspora. Yeah. And they're being run out of town by the Cossacks. And they get to America. She with the boy, the father's been killed. Who knows? Um, and she ends up in a sweatshop. Um, you know, it happens in sweet yeah, shops, yeah, no yeah. safety. So they, this is the experience that's behind yes. people like Dylan, yeah, yeah. even if they don't know it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So it strikes me that you are starting to find your work on really hard and find your poetic voice as timed then with this, this charade comment and this realisation that you need to, you know find out who you are like, yeah. and step up and be you yeah. and so that is handy in terms of having that artistic uh, output and focus to channel that to discover yourself well you can, you can only be yourself and as many selves as you can you know um, build in there yeah. through experience yeah. um, personality and experience I think probably two different things mm -hmm. but one, one thing I know from thinking about you know my, my, my past and other people as well and watching what um, alcoholics do because I'm a recovering alcoholic mm -hmm. right? uh, I've been clean now for maybe 30 years um, so and you get a lot of chance in AA to think about the stuff we should do this for yes. step we yes. look at what the bad stuff you did not him you, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the finger points this way yeah. um, and you take responsibility um, well I realised that for a lot of my life, because of my um, the sort of the programming and the chemicals that were in my my childhood, 
um, <clears throat> I was sabotaging myself. Yeah. Right? Getting out of high school was a sabotage. Yeah. Dropping out of university, sabotage. Yeah. Sabotage, 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 all the way until they end up in the rubbish cut, rubbish trucks, right? Yeah. How low can you go? I don't think it's low. But, you know, when people are trying to run you over because they have such contempt for you on the street, yes. you know, when, when, when a guy comes when, out... When, when all you can see is garbage. Well, yeah. you know, when, when a guy um, comes past you in his, little, in his little hot mini and nearly runs you over and you give him the fingers, yeah. right, and you get around the corner and he's gone inside got the baseball bat and he's coming at you and your two mates jump off the truck and say, yeah, what about it? Yeah. You know, and you see a bit of human nature... Um, and you see that people identify you with what you're doing. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. But I was not identified with what I was doing. I was just happy to be doing that. Yeah. Um, and now I am identified with what I'm doing. You know. Mm, mm. Um, to write, I have the certain things I need to do. I need to read. You know. Yeah. I need to see. Um, something I was reading recently. Um, Elizabeth Bishop gets um, an article in the recent New York Review of Books. Just wonderful, wonderful periodical I bought a subscription to a couple of years ago. I have to renew it, and even though I can't afford it, the periodicals are so great. Yeah. You know, it's like my, it's like my, my university of late life. Well, it's a brilliant article there on Elizabeth Bishop's poetry and her, and her conversation with Robert Lowell. Um, she said the trouble with you know so many male poets is they have all these ideas, but they don't see. They don't see. Yeah. You know? And she's hit on a truth there, you know, that yeah. it's actually about, is that little Māori doll over there, you know? That tells me something about, about the world I live in. Um, certain places you couldn't take it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it happens to be standing in front of a Coca-Cola bottle. There's a poem, you know. I'm not going to write a poem about your, 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 your paraphernalia. Go for it. But, but, no, but, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, and I don't, I don't walk around thinking, I must see, I must see. Yeah, yeah. But I do see, right? You see. It all goes in there. It all goes in there. Yeah, and, yeah. and there's a good example of this. Um, and, and what Jack Ballin was trying to tell me to get out of and get into was uh, something I read this morning in, in an article about Hokusai. The um, Japanese painter, yeah. who's that famous, famous painting with the fisherman and the waves, yeah. about to you know drown the boat, and there's Fuji in the background. You know, um, there's an exhibition of Hokusai on in the British Museum, and um, we're going to go and see it in London, God willing. Um, and Hokusai said he lived till he was 90. He planned to live to 110 so he could become the Buddha, um, but he died when he was 90. He didn't quite make it. But he said, until I was 70, I'd done nothing worthwhile. And there's a kind of self-regard in that deprecation, you know. Yes. Um, but after that, um, he, he became an old man, crazy to paint. Yeah? What an amazing description. Mm. Crazy to paint. He had to paint. He mm. had to be what he was. And I'm thinking, well, that'll do me. You know, 70 this year, I want to be an old man, crazy to write. Yeah. You know? that, that I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing for me yeah well anybody else likes it that's great but also um, and <laughs> also that what's happened to you is why you've become what you're now doing yeah. so it's that too right well for you too i mean you know yeah, yeah, there's yeah. something in you sitting there with that that mic and you're the world that you've created you yeah. know for yourself for sure because you're good at it you know um or trying to be yeah well i'm trying to be too you know yeah. it's, it's yeah. only you know good enough yeah. Good enough yeah. to, to, to try again. Yeah. You know? There's yeah. always the new next interview, the next interesting person, you know, there's always the next record. Yeah. There's always the next page. Yeah. Um, but 
I, I feel I feel now that I'm in harness, you know. I'm in harness with my energy that I was pushing in all those other directions. Yeah. Trying to trying to gain approval, trying to help other people. You've removed the, you know, the element of sabotage comp almost completely, haven't you? I, I try not to sabotage myself no. now. So I guess that's yeah. the change. And yeah. That, that, that actually, that came when um, after um, a number of radical experiences when I left the psychiatric hospital and got, you know, out of my head on dope for a year. My partner was killed in a road accident. I'm, I, I remarried again. Um, I had a radical Christian conversion experience. That's in the book. You can see some of that there. Yeah. Um, in the after five or six years, in a really quite amazing functional um, alternative lifestyle, um, loose loose community in Runanga, we actually had a whole community thing going, where a lot of people with very broken lives um, you know, were actually were able to help each other and get back on track. Um, we, we, my wife and I, our two kids, we went to England because we both had British passports. Uh, and over there I worked in a, psych, um, a residential care home out in the country in Kent for about 18 months, two years, and just had a burnout breakdown. You know, like that was the, that was the end that Jack Ballard, Ballard right. was prophesying for me. Yeah. You know, I burnt out. Um, I was going to ask you about a, like a rock bottom type, <laughs> that was the, which I felt like we were getting towards that, that the was a, That was the, the rock bottom of rock bottoms because I was in this, in this place which was run as a Christian charity. It was an old manor house and the guys would come down from London and they'd, they'd, they'd be picked up off the streets, not quite literally, but there was a there was a, a charity working in the East End of London which took in homeless guys, fed them, clothed them, got them a doctor's appointment. If they wanted to um, get out of town, go to the country for a bit of healing, live in a therapeutic community for a while, uh, work on the land, that kind of stuff, it was a really good idea. Um, then they could sign up for this, this um, community. And so I went to work for them. Um, but you had, like most of them were alcoholics, right? Um, guys really battered. Battered backgrounds and all sorts of stuff. They were pretty broken, um, and we we were trying to mend them. Um, and and you know you had sort of thirty dry drunks in the house, you yeah. know, and it burnt me out. It yeah. just burnt me out. Um, I, I just blew up. I went to the doctor one day, and I was I'd come up stairs. We were in an upstairs apartment. We lived on the job. It's just not a good idea in a, in a psychotherapeutic community. You're never away. Because you, you've got to be able to get away from it. Well, heck, and you couldn't. The only way to yeah. get away from it was to drive away. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You, you weren't kind of, you were never quite at home because no. people would come up the stairs and knock on the door. Yeah. And you could say, go away, but, you know. Um, anyway, I, I was coming up the stairs at, at lunchtime and laying down and doing deep breathing exercises to stop myself from shaking. I'd wake up in the morning filled with dread, you know. God. I was in burnout. Yeah. So I was feeling so bad one day, I went to the doctor and I got to know him quite well because he knew us at the at the community. He said, mm. "Answer me five questions." Ding, 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 ding. And I answered them. He said, "You're depressed." He said, "You're burnt out because he knew it was how hard it was up there." So mm. He said, "I'm writing you a sick note." He said, um, "You're resigning." Right. And I said, "But it's a tight job." He said, "Don't worry." He said, "He said um, I'll write a recommendation to the local council that you get a council house." <laughs> Just like that. Yeah. And the community, they were very good. They, they let me stay there until I found a job. Got a job in a bookshop in town, Waterstones and Gladstone. Yeah, yeah. Got the council house. Um, and a bit later on, we moved up to London, got a job 
Waterstones and Charing Cross Road, and that was where I began meeting these poets, right? Yeah, yeah. Meeting these books, yeah. meeting Simon Armitage's book, his yeah. first book, yeah. you know, meeting guys like Simon Rushdie on the page. Later, yeah. saw him in the shop. Wow. You know, hearing poets when the Velvet Revolution was happening about that time in, in, in Eastern Europe, yeah. you'd have Czech poets and novelists coming over and doing readings in the shop. A guy called Miroslav Holub, you know. It was just like boof, you know. I was put back. I was put back in in my university. Yeah, wow. Um, and they were quite close to um, adult education institutions like City Lit, which is a legendary adult ed place in London. They have all sorts of stuff going on there. So I took a poetry writing course there with a, a Scots writer called Alison Fell, who's a poet and novelist. You know, so you go along every week. Um, yeah. And and then I took another. I took a fiction writing course with a crime writer called Irving Weinman, whose main contribution to my education was get yourself a place where you can write. <laughs> he used to go to an office in the city, yeah. take his lunch and close the door and spend all, all day or five or six hours a day writing his crime novel and wow. go home. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was, I was learning stuff, but I also wrote a lot of poems then and I, I got in the habit of writing every day. I yeah. would get up in the morning, right, at five, five or six o'clock if I woke up and I would write for half an hour or an hour, uh, not not a novel, not a poem. I yeah. would just write. Yeah. I'd start writing automatically because um, I'd read this book that said do that. Um, this book. So diary like stuff. Well, almost. it was a book by a woman called Dorothea Brand called On Being a Writer on, and it was it had sold millions of copies and people yeah. laugh at it because she recommends that you also drink yerba mate tea. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I passed yeah. on the yerba mate, yeah, yeah. Um, which I'd been drinking in my hippie days back here, <laughs> um, but. But I did that, right? And she had a point yeah. that you made yourself write whatever. Yeah. Okay. And and what one thing I learned from that, not that anything was inspired, um, although it helped me to write more poems later when I was working in my lunch hour in Waterstones, and I'd yeah. go across the road to the local cafe, and I would be in Cafe Dante across the road, and Dylan Horrocks would be in Batista's on the other side, and we'd right. be both be writing. He'd yeah. be drawing, yeah. right? Because we worked together. Yeah. Um, and. You know, I learned that you needed to sit down and bloody well do it. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, and whatever happened, I mean, I started writing a novel in my lunch hour. It's it's never going to see the light of day. <laughs> but I'm, I learned some discipline. Yeah. And yeah. and one or two good poems started to come out. Um, well, poems have, you know, survived up until yeah up until now. Um, and and I just, I think I was just getting pleasure and lost in the act of doing that and realising that I didn't have to spend my life, you know, doing something for somebody else. Yeah. Um, until eventually, in, you know, by the end of 1995, when I came back to New Zealand for the Blackball School Centennial um, and went back again, I realised I didn't want to leave New Zealand. I wanted right. to come home. Yeah. But my wife was still working over there and involved in education, so if I was going to come back, it would have to be me on my own for a while. Um, and... I was working in the unpacking room one day in Goods Inn, unloading all these skips of books. I thought, why am I doing this? What am I doing here? I was pushing 50, and I was doing the work of a young man. Um, and it was like, you know, the, the sabotaging had to stop. Yeah. Just had to stop. I thought, I can't do this anymore. It wasn't not physically, of course I could. Yeah, yeah. So I went home, we talked. Teresa said to me, well, why don't, why don't you go home and enrol at university and finish a degree? I thought, maybe I could. So I wrote to the University of Canterbury and they said, by all means, you've still got a record. So I, I, I enrolled. 
um, and packed up and went home. So. And what do you do at university? You, oh well, I'd, I'd, I'd had a half finished, basically yeah. arts degree, yeah. mainly English. Yeah. So I went back and did um, did it, did four English papers in the semesterised system that they had yeah. by then, um, and that's where I met Patrick Evans, Rob yeah. Jackman, and various other people. And then the following year, I did Rob Jackman's poetry writing course. And do you know what's funny? I've been waiting to yeah. bust this, but I'm pretty yeah. sure you did that course with my wife. Was what would have been in it with you? Her yeah. name then would be Katie Robinson. Yeah. And, yeah. So oh, yeah. how about that? <laughs> I was going to... She said, make sure you mention that. She said, I'm pretty sure he was in my class. And I said... Uh, and I was going to say it when you came in. And then I thought, maybe we'll just get to that in your timeline. So how about that? Well, <laughs> she was bloody good, actually. Yeah, I still quite like her. As, as I remember. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think... She wrote a novel, um, yeah. which actually is up there. Um, it's that, that blue-covered book on the top. Yep. Yeah. Um, so she didn't publish any poetry. Yes, I yeah. remember. Yeah, 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 yes. yeah. So that's her novel that came out about 12 years ago, and, and that's a, a great book, but uh, a really great book. And she, she's done some bits and pieces towards other books and then sort of put them on, put them on hold, but... Yeah, no, she was primarily a poet, and, yes. and I think poetry is a bit of a dirty word for her in, in some ways now. But oh, okay. yeah, yeah, but but um, how funny is that? I wish I had a copy of my um, as big as a father with me now because there's there's a there's a poem in there. Yeah. About about the writers. At that oh course. right! Wow. Yeah, I don't um, see. I don't know that book of yours. No, yeah, well, wow. it, was the, it was the first one I got yes. published yeah, after, yeah. after *As Big as a Father*, um, which I'd written in London. I entered it into the Fitzgerald Poetry Prize out here at Porirua, yeah, yeah, and it won. Yeah. Right. Um, and that was the breakthrough thing for me. Because yeah. I'd come back and I, you know, I'd, that was and that was before I did Rob's course. Yeah. I just entered it and um, they had a thousand entries and Sam Hunt was given the. The, the, the top hundred they go through them they don't make him judge them all yeah yeah and um, and I got to go out to Porirua and meet Sam um, I'd seen him at a poetry um, performance in Greymouth years ago but yeah. actually to meet him unstoned and pretty, pretty straight <laughs> yeah um, and um, he said oh he said this poem he said the poem Jeffrey poem he said well, it made me cry made me cry and he said you know I, I rang my maid read it to him over the phone <laughs> <laughs> Such a um, great Sam response. Yeah, you know, it was, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, just say it. and he said to me, so, so what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm going back to the university. Oh, get out of there, get out of there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I just love him. He's such a great guy. Yeah, but but yeah. he was there, you're right, and he, and he sort of gave me the, gave me the, gave me the prize and, um, and, and um, Alistair Campbell, Alistair Tariki Campbell was there with me, yeah, you know, because yeah. they were patrons of the whole thing. Yes. Um, and I'd been writing to Alistair from England, actually, I'd, Somehow or other, I can't remember what, but I'd been in touch with them, so we kind of knew each other through letters, um, and that was a kind of breakthrough moment. Yeah. Um, and then I just started to get together a few poems, um, and thought, ah, I'm I'm going to do, um, you know, what do they call those demo tapes you make? Maybe it's demo tapes. I'm going to do a demo tape. Yeah. Right? I'm going to publish. I'm going to I'm going to do a a little booklet of my own poems. Yeah. And just to make me feel good. Like a little chapbook. Yeah, a little chapbook. And I called it Flood Damage. Yeah. And I worked with a guy who had a little little um, alternative press um, in, in, in Christchurch. Um, and we published 
published about 25 copies, I think, um, and it cost me, I don't know, $100 or something. And then I just went around selling them. Yeah. Um, and we had a week launch. Because uh, at, at that time it was, I was in the poetry course with, with, with Katie and yeah. Jeanette, my present wife, and a few other people. Um, and it just was to encourage me, right? Um, and then I kept on writing and kept on building up a manuscript. And eventually I had this thing. And so James Brown, who I'd met at that yeah. um, thing at Porirua, because he was, he was on sport with, yes, with, yeah, yeah. with Fergus, Fergus Barrowman. Yeah. Um, and he came to be the writer-in-residence. He's writing had poetry manuscript. So I showed him the manuscript. And he, and he liked it, and he wanted to change the title. Um, <laughs> and I said, no, no, I like that title. And I worked with Bernadette Hall as well, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, down there as well. So I shopped, workshopped it. Yeah. And then and and, um, and James said to me, you should send this out, you know, see what happens. He said, I suggest you try Roger Steele. Yeah. You know? yeah. He said, because he's, he publishes New Zealand poetry, he's, he's committed to poetry. Yeah. You know, he'd be he'd be the guy to, to send it to. So I did, and um, I nothing happened for several weeks. Uh, nothing unusual, um, and I'm a bit funny when I when I come home and get the mail. I don't normally open it straight away. I I put everything down and um, make 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 a cup of tea, and then I sit yeah. down and look yeah. at it. And they didn't look very interesting, but there was one part, one envelope which had a handwritten address on the front. You know, Jeffrey Popper, blah blah blah, and I turned it over. And on the back, um, it had Steel Roberts, you know, this logo. Yeah. And I twisted it like this, and I thought, that's not a manuscript term. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a letter, <laughs> you know, which said, oh, you know, Jeffrey, I, I really like your poems. I'd be proud to publish them. This. So I rang him up. Yeah. I hope he doesn't listen to this. Kill me. <laughs> but I rang him up, and it's going babble, 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 babble. <laughs> And he said, you know, well, you know, we've, we've, we've got to get the funding from Creative New Zealand, and poetry books, you know, expensive yeah. to publish. Yeah. Um, but we'll, we'll apply for that and see where we go. And, and so we, I babbled some more and he listened patiently. Busy one, you know, pretty much <laughs> doing most of it on his own with some helpers up there. Yeah. Um, and I said, I don't know what to say. He said, how about goodbye? <laughs> <laughs> so we'll be in touch. Yeah. Um, and they got the money. And they made a beautiful job with the book, and um, got shortlisted for the Montanas. <laughs> it was sort of like, what the? Yeah. What the? You know, um, and with Glenn Cahoon. Yeah. Um, and Robert Sullivan. In fact, three books that were reviewed in the same issue of the Listener. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's very strange, but you know, so we got to go up to the ceremony in Auckland and all that stuff, and that was very nice. And you know, and and Glenn got the top gong and got on him. You know, it's a great book. Um, but it was just like I had some affirmation. Yeah. You know? um, well, that you'd worked that you'd worked hard for too across a good couple of decades, right? Plus whatever else had got you know, yeah. and then a, yeah, maybe yeah. up to a couple of decades before that gathering. It gave me it gave me the confidence, Simon, to keep going. You yeah. know, to think okay, because in some ways you judge by a jury of your peers. Yeah. But if you actually get to the point of a a publication and it goes out and it's reviewed and some people like it and some people don't but next thing um, there's an interest out there in what you're doing yeah. if you do it a few more times um, what happens is 
you end up sitting here being interviewed, right? Yeah, yeah. Because you're doing work which um, has got has got some kind of place in the in the present environment. It yeah. doesn't mean it's going to last for extra sure. years. Who knows? But yeah. in this moment. Um, you're doing something. Well, that's never your decision or no. contemplation anyway, is it? That's well, right. Once you've, once you've got this far, there's no more decisions you've got to make. You, know? <laughs> yeah. um, you can promote it, which, yeah. which, which you do. Which you're yeah. doing. Um, it's part of part of part of part of writing and publishing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, and tomorrow night we've got we've got this 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 gig at um, the Fringe Club. Yeah. Um, and that's the last in the series that Mary's done with these three hoop books. Um, but you know, I'm I'm already thinking of something else. Other, other, yeah. other irons in the fire. Tell, let, let's talk a little bit about the the, the uh, his, history books, the prose writing, the the um, stuff, that, academic writing, the stuff that you've done that's not poetry, because that's an important part of your story too. Well, you know, I was I was a good English student, and yeah. and, I and liked you were a reader of. History. I liked history. I yeah. liked history at yeah. school. I did yeah. well in those subjects. Yeah. And I took those sort of papers um, at university both yeah. you know, early early on. Um, yeah, yeah, the and, first time. Yeah. And and later on. Yeah. Um in my in my third attempt. Yeah. Successful attempt to finish the BA. <laughs> um and because I liked the writing environment, I stayed on at university and, mm. and went on to honours and I was gonna stop there because my student debt was piling up. Yeah. Um and my supervisor in one of the honours papers said to me, what are you going to do? I said, I'm leaving. She said, why don't you apply for, for post-grad, for MA? I said, no, nah, too much debt. She said, you can apply for a scholarship, you know. And so this was sort of on the Monday or the Tuesday, yeah. and the applications closed on the Wednesday. So we cobbled together an application <laughs> between the two of us yeah. and a subject. Yeah. Um, and we, I looked at the two prospective um, scholarships and one was for an MA, so many so many dollars, um, so many thousand dollars. Uh, one was for a PhD, a couple of thousand more a year. Yeah. So I thought, well, there's more money in that one. That was how that was how noble it was. My motive in jumping to the PhD, which you couldn't do now. Yeah. And this this is going to horrify anybody <laughs> in the university system now. Here's it. But anyway, it worked. So they can't complain. Yeah. You know, I got, I got, I got, I got paid employment again to write. Which is the first time I've been paid to write, really. Yeah, yeah. But I was writing history, right? And even though I was doing the PhD, I was doing a PhD in nineteenth-century um, Maori history and the work of the anthropologist Elston Best and his his two hoi informants, um, who who gave him the material, um, which made him famous, um, which he preserved. Uh, so I was I was I was involved in prose writing. And and it was academic academic writing, okay, um, which some sends some people screaming out of the room, yeah, and yeah. I can understand that. You know, you take so much postmodernist gobbledygook, which yeah. when you boil it all down, you know, may not be saying very much. Um, but you have to you have to do, if you're in the police force, you have to speak the language of the police, right? If if you're if you're an engineer, you have to speak the language of the in engineers. Yeah. So if you're working in academia and social sciences or um, a sort of media, culture, historical studies, you have to speak in that language in order to communicate. Um, and when it's done done well, it's effective. But, you know, there is an obfuscation can go on, yeah. I think, yeah. sometimes. Um, people may be trying to say too much without, without, without 
necessarily having a lot to say. They can get bogged um, down in writers responding to other writers, responding to other writers too, I think, you know, I think. And I might get into trouble for saying this, but, you know, you, I think, you know, in, 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 in Māori society, if you are sent or privileged to get into a position to go to a tertiary institution and have that money spent on you and, and, and that support in all sorts of ways, then when you come out of it, you owe something to the community. And I think in terms of, um, you know, history and and, 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 and and sociology and criminology and all these sorts of things, there's got to be some sort of payback if a community is in trouble, mm-hmm. you know, or is in, has, 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 has issues of historical issues that need to be resolved, as we have. So um, to, to me, it's not an abstract question. You know, yeah. history is not an abstract question. It's affecting yeah. us all today. Yeah. Uh, you know, an example might be something I discovered that when we moved into that state house in Bayswater in 19... 50-51, um, just across the harbour in Orakai on the other side, they were burning down buildings on the par yeah. because they were considered unhygienic and the world tour was coming and whatever, whatever, whatever. In other words, you know, the, the sort of last gasp of actual colonialist removals yeah. you know, were happening yeah. under my little little English nose. Yeah. Um, so we're all, we're all embroiled in history. It's the sort of thing that people might wish to deny yeah, yeah, but people exactly. had enough of treaty settlements and stuff yeah. well you know I've only had enough when everybody's got enough yeah. you know to eat yeah. to house to wear to work uh, I might be an idealist but I don't want to live in a society where you know the, the top eats all the pie yeah. and, 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 and the people down the bottom have to scrabble over the crumbs left on the plate mm. you know it's criminal mm-hmm. so and and that and that's and that's that's not just a social class issue. That's a racial issue as well. So that that's what getting into those sort of um, historical studies and my PhD work did for me. It made me realise a lot of things that I kind of knew, but I realised them more clearly. And then I had to go up and do some interviews in Tuhoi and meet people up there. You know, who was I? What business would I have being in there? Who is no here in Pagha? You know, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. Um, but from, but I met I met some people who were related to people I knew in Christchurch, and they were friendly and helpful. Um, and then I met another guy who was particularly helpful, um, and this is a friend to my to this day. Um, because when someone up there heard that I'd been up there asking questions, um, this this guy um, Himana Waka was a filmmaker. Um, um, documentary maker mm. and someone had said to him in the two Ahurei this particular year oh this has been this Pākehā fellow up here talking about Elston Best you know and uh, he didn't say oh those guys should those guys should just bugger off he rang me up he said oh what are you doing and I said I'm doing this PhD on Best and um, his work up here he said could I come and talk to you because you're a documentary maker yeah. right thought he might have a subject so he came down to Christchurch and interviewed me and said can I use this material I said, sure, it's all, it's all your material, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, and he, I introduced him to my wife, who teaches Māori in, in, in the school of Māori down there. And um, and he he talked to her and said, no, oh, not many Pākehā women are teaching Māori at university. Can I interview you? And he made a documentary about her. <laughs> <laughs> so, he, he's, you know, a great, he's a former military man, yeah, you know, yeah. um, very comfortable in te ao Māori, te ao Pākehā, you know. He was, he was, he took an opportunity, yeah. um, 
And then later he came back to me and said, oh, uh, we want to make a, a, a sort of bio, a biopic um, with this research. Um, we want to include your work in it. So through, through that, they made a longer documentary with talking heads, with people acting the parts of Best and Tutakanaho, um, his main informant. Um, and through that I met this guy I mentioned before, Tipani, yes. who, who's become one of my close friends. And I went up and stayed with him. Um, and, and he liked me as a Christian, and so he welcomed me like a long-lost brother. And he took me up to Mango Pohatsu, you know. I got, to, I got to go to the Holy Grail with mm. this, this guy who had the rights to take me there. Um, and so I'm very, I'm very grateful for his, you know, his willingness to, to show me around and, and introduce me into his world. Um, and through doing that PhD um, and, and, and sort of thinking, what do I do with this material now? I thought, maybe there's a book in here. Uh, like you know, like a monograph, mm, like mm. something that Penguin or somebody might mm. might publish. So I jotted down some notes with the help of my supervisor and um, one of my one of my colleagues down there, Paul Miller, um, said to me, "What are you doing with that PhD?" And I said, "Well, I've got this kind of you know plan. I did a few bullet points." He said, "Oh, could I have a look?" So I sent it to him, and he read it and sent it to Jeff Walker at Penguin Books. Mm. Um, and Jeff was interested enough to get in touch with me and say. Would you like to talk? So we got in touch, and he said, "Well, if you can um, you know, send us a sample of what you think you might write and a plan, we can, we might be able to talk about a contract, just like that, you know, which is the sort of thing that would make um, the average academic go green with envy." Yeah. Uh, I just it was just like I fell into all these jobs, you know, yeah. <laughs> back then when I was stooging around putting yeah. off life. Yeah. Um, when I started doing the right thing, things started to happen. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's it still meant I had to I had to write the book. Yeah. So I had to produce it's not exactly. It's not easy work. But. No. Um, but so then we applied. I, I sent him a sample. I sent him a chapter, good chapter outline, a beefed up chapter outline, and they sent me the contract, signed the contract, um, and once I had that, I was able to apply for the copyright licensing. Um, non-fiction award yeah. in 2007 and um, with Martin Edmund we both got awarded uh, the award the, they, they paid two awards back then so I got $35,000 to write the book yeah um, and that's and that's how the, the best of both worlds yeah. came about yeah um, and so I didn't just I didn't just drop the material from the thesis into a you know, yeah, yeah. once once over, I rewrote the entire thing, but sure. I used I used a few sections. Yeah. Um, but the book is a twin biography of Best and this and this uh, important tuhui leader Tutakanaho from yeah. the Tamakai Moana Hapu up in Mangapohatu, which is basically where Rua became based, Rua Kinana, um, in the early 1900s. Um, and you know, once we'd once we'd done that book, um, I. I got in touch with the elders up there and said, look, I'd like to come meet you and discuss the possibility of launching the book at Mangapohatu. And so they conferred and got back to him and said, well, come on up and we'll meet you. Check me out. Mm. You know? mm. um, and so we had, a, we, had a, we had a porphyry and a hui. Um, it was amazing. Um, and I, I had a bound copy of my, of my thesis. Um, I took it up there and, um, and gave it to them. Um, no, not thesis, sorry, the book. 
the actual book that was going to be yeah. the manuscript. I got a bound copy made um, and said, you know, this is what I we want to do. Um, he gave it to them and, you know, we had the quarter around. I had to stand up and do my best with what Māori I had. Um, it was amazing, amazing. And that same same meeting house, where do I can in had probably slept um, and been taken off to prison in that raid. Um, so incredible. They yeah. they said we'll get back to you. Right? And two weeks later, I got a letter from Richard saying yes, you can launch here. Let us know, you know, wow. what, what dates. So we, we 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 the book was printed, and Jeff Walker and a number of other people came up, and I brought some elders from down in Christchurch. One of them was a Tuhoi man, mm. Rangi Ho, mm. who lives down there, and I brought our Kalmatua from the. Um, Hahi Mihirani, the Anglican Māori Church where I go. Um, he's an old Ngāti pro man, native speaker. He came with me as my kaumatua. Um, and we went up there and um, they welcomed us on with the book. And we're standing there at the gate waiting to go in. Um, and I looked up at the, at the porch of the marae in the meeting house and there's all this kuya sitting there in black with the parikawakawa green leaves right, on the waiting. Yeah. And Beside them, they'd taken all the portraits outside and put them on the veranda. They were they were there to see me. The wow. old, the oldest. Yeah, wow. Uh, far out. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was just it was overpowering. It was just I mean, you know, and when when they stood up to welcome us, um, they gave they gave the you know they had the karanga and the call. And, and then we had we had the Whaikōrero and um, Tipani stood up and spoke for me and what was amazing about that was he had a, he'd had a bypass about five days beforehand wow. in Waikato Hospital, he had a massive heart attack wow. and he'd agreed to come and speak for me and when this happened he told his son I'm still going to go and you know right. speak for Paparoa and he, he said over my dead body dad you're not going up there he said, I'm going. He said, oh, you, either you take me or someone else will take me. He forced his son, wow. you know, get him out yeah. of hospital, yeah. take him home, and he's still got bandages. And he's, this little man, not really big, stands yeah. up and speaks for me, you know. Um, and afterwards he said to me, oh, it's the first time I've ever done that. First time I've ever spoken on my right. Wow. <laughs> so it was incredible. It was incredible. Yeah. It was a wonderful day. And and so, you know, we launched the book there. So Amazing. Um, and I went, I went back uh, last year when they had the anniversary of the raid on, on oh. Rua's community um, and uh, people, people, uh, people know you're coming, you yeah. know, because Tipani had said he was bringing me up. Yeah. And one of the guys, um, Tane Rua, who's a, who's a mokopuna um, of, of Rua, when he stood up, he said in Māori, oh, Paparoa, we'll never forget what you did. Wow. With this book. Right? Yeah. So somehow or other, yeah. you know, just getting into the getting into the right space um, and doing what I was supposed to be doing was writing, using using the I suppose the experience yeah. and the practice that poetry writing had taught me, yeah. and and trying to make interesting prose, yeah. you know, to keep the story the narrative going, but to make it make it readable. Um, Stylistically, 
as well as well you write this book the kabakazi pilot one which is i guess your um you know you've you've already sort of briefed me there on your war fascination that's lifelong or, or embedded in you early on and and what I noticed in that was exactly that that you that that sort of poet's eye that poet's instinct for storytelling um, well, thank you for saying when, that. when addressing it you know in, in yeah. a non-fiction book <laughs> you know it's not, I mean I read a lot of non-fiction so I find non-fiction you know exciting to me mm. it's it's often more exciting than fiction doesn't mean that the fiction's bad but no, I could just no. uh, you know but some people still I think have this idea that non-fiction is as serious as boring and uh, it can be serious without being boring and it could also be you know fun and vital without you know without losing any of the the aims that it has to tell a true story if, if you have a story that's that's you know in any way powerful or interesting you know then it's a crime to, if you're going to write it to write it badly isn't it yes yep you know? yep you, you're destroying the material yep that that should bring another human being into your orbit so they'll get the story um, yeah. I mean if I go to Japan on that kind of journey and I meet the brothers of the men who died attacking my father's aircraft carrier and they welcome me like a long lost son <laughs> yeah. if I write that badly yeah, yeah. well they should throw me over the side yeah that's your fault your fault <laughs> fault you know? only and yeah um, yeah and exactly and, and readers should have a disappointment about that because that story's already huge well, you know, the, there are some things that are just gifts, and, mm. and all you really need to do is just describe them. Yeah, know? that's right. Just, 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 cl- just present it. Just clinically, almost. That's right. <laughs> the work is done by um, how those elements came together. The, the, I mean, there's a moment where, through you know, all the help I get, um, we t- we end up down at the um, at the museum in Kanoya, um, and and I'm meeting the museum staff for the first time. Yeah, and they're giving me. The once over, right? And basically, to get the addresses of the families I wanted to meet, I had to go there and meet them. Yeah. Um, and as they're giving me this material, they'd already decided to give it to me. I could see that they had the, they had pictures of the two men who died in one of those bombers, in those dive bombers. Um, and when I saw them, you know, and I looked at Chiharu Nagata, who was nineteen. I burst into tears, and I'm standing there sobbing, right? Because it really was a, was a pretty powerful experience to go through this whole thing of getting to Japan. Yeah. Bearing in mind it was 2011, and we'd just yeah. been through these yes. bloody earthquakes. Yes. <laughs> and, um, I was a bit fragile, um, a bit emotionally labile, as a psychiatrist like to say. Um, and I couldn't, I didn't want to stop, you know? I was, I was I wasn't just weeping for them. I was weeping for myself and my father and the whole waste of it all. You know, these, mm. these, these young, these young eyes looking back at me, um, and they just, you know, they just stood there. They didn't turn away. They just stood there extremely politely and waited for me to finish. And then asked my interpreter if we'd like a guided tour of the museum. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I just feel um, that that parts of my life since I went back to university and and decided to do something serious with my writing or take writing seriously yeah you know they've okay I'm going to use this expression they've been touched by grace yeah you know things that I could not do myself yeah have opened up for me um 
and you know, for me, that's an article of faith. Yeah. But on the other hand, I think anybody who uses the gifts they've been given, um, in you know, in a positive and creative way, will get a reward. Um, yeah, the measure of that reward is different per person, but whatever you try to seek from it, you know, hopefully there's something, there is some gain for going through it and putting it out there, right? Like, bare minimum. Well, Raymond Carver, who had sort of 10 years of sobriety, you know, and and was lauded by the end of his life as the American Chekhov, and, yeah. and, you know, great blue-collar poet, um, wrote a poem called Gravy, which is in the last one of his, his selected poems, you know, and he basically says, you know, well, you know, these these years, what have they been to me? You know, it's been gravy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which yeah. is like the nice stuff on top of the meal, you know, that yeah. gives it that flavour. Yeah. Um, and I wish I could remember the, remember the poem now, but, you know, that, that, that's the thought. Yes. That I've, I've been given this, you know, this, this reprieve yeah. from destroying myself. Yeah. Which any alcoholic would, you go to a meeting, you know, and you'll hear the stories, yes. the same stories. Um... I mean, they're always fresh to me because that's what I do. I tell the same story, but that person is saying, you know, I'm alive today because I'm not I'm not killing myself with the next yeah. drink. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I kind of see every day as a as a kind of act of grace. That I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm grateful that I landed in Wellington today. I'm grateful that I'm, you know, going to spend some time this evening with, with Dylan and Terry. Yeah. You know, and, and whatever happens tomorrow, um, we'll go with that, but... I think writing, writing to me is a, is, is a kind of incredible privilege. Um, mm. um, I don't, I don't, I don't take it lightly. You know, it's, um, no, I think you can tell in your work that you don't take it lightly. But certainly in this conversation, people will, will know that. And and I'm grateful for, uh, for you coming around and meeting me and, and having this talk. Um, I feel like we could go for several more hours, and maybe and maybe we'll have another chat another time down down the road. But uh, um, is there, is there anything you want? I, I, I'm, you're reaching for that book, which is great because I was going to say you can take us out with one of the poems from there. But um, is there anything that you want to touch on before we wrap up that we haven't got to? No, I you know. I, th- I think in an interview like this, it's, it's really good to play it by the ear and go with the interviewer. Yeah. Um, but I, I just think that that poetry right now seems to be on a bit of a roll in New Zealand. You know, the yeah. last bestsellers for for fiction, and some people say, "Why is poetry in fiction?" Yeah, well, yeah. there's reasons. Comes back to that, that question. There's yeah. reasons for that. But um, six of the ten in the recent list were poetry. Yeah. You know, yeah, amazing. And you know, there's there's an anthology coming out called Manifesto, published by Otago University yeah. um, Press, um, of political poetry. Yeah. And I've got a poem in there for the Pike River miners. You know, so that to me, I think that's great. You know, that that poetry is opening up ways and means yes. which which aren't really being um, overtaken by ebooks in the digital world, yeah, yeah. people like to have a book. Yeah. Um, and you know, a short book of poems you can take it anywhere. Yeah. Um, I kind of think there's a moment for poetry at, the mo- at, at this present time. Um, I may be wrong, but no, it does feel. Be, I agree. It um, feels like that, and we we have some great. I mean, great poets in New Zealand and great new voices as well as established. Voice, you know, um, thinking of like 
Bill Mann higher releasing a new book yeah. of pubs for the first time in a while Sam Hunt being more productive in the last more prolific in the last few years than he ever has and then all these exciting new voices you know here are Lindsay Bird and people like that it's amazing well I will read you something yeah please do but I just a- out of interest yeah I jotted down six or eight major poems of the major songs and, and, and poems of the late 20th century uh, that, that Dylan had penned and they go like this Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, 63 Desolation Row, 1965 Idiot Wind, 75 Hurricane, 1976 Brownsville Girl, 1986 Series of Dreams, which was recorded in 89 but didn't come out in 95 Blind Willie McTell, 93 recorded, came out in 97 and Roll On John, you know, in the Tempest album, 2012 you know, any one of those poems those songs you could die to have written just one yes you know and Brownsville Girl I mean come yeah. on it's on one of the worst Dylan albums ever but it, but it is one of his great songs it's great. one of his great songs certainly what, probably his greatest song of that decade or up there yeah yeah, yeah. and then Series of Dreams which is yeah. incredible yeah. psychedelic Absolutely. sort of experience and then he dropped a song like Blind Willie McTell yeah off the album you know anyone else would have had it up there and called the album Blind Willie McTell yeah exactly exactly um, and it, you know, it's a song about a great blues singer, but what is yeah. it but great blues? Yeah, yeah. You've got to love it. Anyway, this, the poem that, that I'll finish on for yeah. you is, um, is, is, is called Blind Willie McTell and the Series of Dreams. Yeah. And I've dated it 1991 because that's when I heard it. <laughs> Bootleg whiskey in the record shop. Music you don't want to stop ever. Where do you think he gets this stuff? Where's he been hiding that still? Sounds like it comes from some haunted swamp, the heartland, the boneyard, a cypress log. Feels like a storm when you crank it up loud. Crazy men, slavery men, mad as proud. Makes you sweat when you think about it, all those speakeasy moonshine bars. He must steal it to make you feel it, from the roots of the bio to the cottonmouth stars. They say every man must need protection. They say every man must fall Yet I swear I see my reflection Someplace so high above the wall I see my light come shining From the west down to the east 